Hey everybody, this is Wayne, and this is the Green Pill Podcast. And our guest today is my dear friend and longtime animal rights activist, Jeremy Beckham. If you were to see Jeremy on the street, you would think, this guy looks completely unassuming. He looks a little geeky. He might be a computer programmer or a librarian or someone who does public health work. And and honestly, you wouldn't be wrong about those guesses. (laughs) Jeremy is someone who's a little bit of a geek. Nothing wrong with that, but he is a little bit of a geek, and he has an encyclopedic knowledge of activism and animal rights, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to him for the podcast. But Jeremy has also lived a pretty extraordinary life, including having his home raided by the federal government on multiple occasions going toe-to-toe with some of the biggest animal abusers on the planet, including powerful universities and corporations. And he's also been saved, and, and I'm not exaggerating by saying this, but he has been saved by a prodigious number of stuffed animals. It's a story that's kind of too ridiculous to even believe, but it's true, and he'll tell the story in this podcast. But I wanted to have him on the show, and I wanted to publish the podcast right now because we're living in a time where there's a lot of despair with what's happened at the Supreme Court, Ukraine, January 6th. A lot of people don't feel much hope. And Jeremy's one of them, honestly. He's a pessimist. But I think what you see in this conversation is how the contrast, and, and really more than the contrast, the integration between Jeremy's pessimism and my optimism is in many ways part of the puzzle for how we create solutions for change. Um, Because sometimes you need both of those perspectives to really get at strategies that will get the world to where it needs to go. But I'll let you decide for yourself. Listen to the podcast. It's a a lot of fun. It's a long conversation, but it's a very fun conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Without further ado, here's Jeremy. Jeremy, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. How about you, Wayne? got a gin and tonic. We just had got to uh, get a little relaxed. Bar, some vegan wings. Those are really good wings. Yeah, they're great. You know, Fantastic. one of the weird things about Utah that most people don't know is that it's actually kind of a little bit of a vegan mecca. Some of the food here is just unbelievably good. I think my single favorite vegan bakery in the world is here, City Cakes. And that's probably like our third best vegan bakery. (laughs) I know, it's the third best. I've been to the other two. There's like a French one, right? Like some weird French bakery. There's that one too. I didn't even think about that one. Yeah. (laughs) It's like the fourth best. Yeah, there's Passion Flower, there's Sweet Hazel, and now there's Yums too, which may be my personal favorite. Yeah, and I think I have some theories as to why there might be such great vegan food here, but I'd be interested in hearing yours too. I think it has a lot to do with kind of the backlash, the fact that there's a very powerful conservative culture that's triggered this very powerful, radical response to it, including a very strong vegan culture and, and activist culture in the city of Salt Lake City. But I want to start this podcast just commenting on the physical space we're in today, because I've okay. <laughs> gone through a lot of crazy experiences in my life. I've been arrested, beaten up by dog meat traders. I have not yet, to this day in my life, been raided by the federal government. And we're talking in a space right now that was a subject of a raid about 10 years ago. That was not here. It wasn't here. No. It was your prior house. It was a prior residence. <laughs> For all this time. You yeah. know, it's funny because every time I came here, I'd always tell myself that to get psyched up. And now I feel stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I'd always get excited. But like, it was almost nope. like hallowed ground because as an activist, especially an activist, I mean, anyone who's been following this podcast knows the federal government has done some awful things yeah. in the context of animal rights. A raid for us is almost like a badge of honor. You know, at least to me it is. And so every time I came to this house, and now I feel a little less cool having stayed here so many times. But d- tell me about that experience. What was it like to get raided? Yeah. So it was at a prior residence, and um, I lived there with about seven or eight other activists. And it was actually a squat house. 
Um, it was an abandoned house in Salt Lake City that we all lived in. So wait, explain to people what a squat house is for those who don't know what a squat house is. Yeah, so I mean, this was a house in Salt Lake City that had long been abandoned. Um, from what I had heard, kind of secondhand, there were these major floods in Salt Lake City in like the early 80s. Floods in the yeah. desert? Yeah, there were these major floods. State Street was like a river. You could actually ride a kayak up and down State Holy Street. shit. And this that house was flooded. really fun. <laughs> yeah, it looks fun. I've seen like news clips of it. Yeah. But from what I heard, this house was flooded. And wow. when it was flooded, you know, it was deemed uninhabitable. And ever since the like early 80s, no one was living in this house. Huh. Until one day in like the early 2000s, some like punk kids basically showed up and they took, they pried all the boards off the windows and said, uh-huh. this is our house now. Wow. And uh, no one stopped him. How did you end up there? Because <laughs> you weren't a punk kid. I mean, you're like a... Raised by a fairly conservative family, became Mormon in Utah, and you just decided to move into a bunch of yeah. I mean, I, punk kids into a squat house that's dilapidated. You know, I, I may not have had Liberty Spikes at that point in my life or had a mohawk, <laughs> but I, I think punk is more a frame of mind. Huh. And uh, you know, I, I, I think in some respects, I, I fit the bill at that point in my life. Um, but honestly, this was a house that was pretty well known in the activist scene at the time. Quite a few people had gone through, come, come and gone. Okay, so from you were one of the this was first an, people. No, I was not okay. one of the founders. This house had been a squat house for probably, I want to say, like seven years before I even showed up. Okay. Wow. Um, so yeah, it was like this punk house, and and I mean, I definitely remember the the day of the raid pretty well. So can I ask you a question about yeah. this? Because I, I I think I know the answer to this, but for folks who are listening and have never heard of a squat house. Is there electricity and water in this house? Um, what there, does the owner yeah. do with the house? And why are they allowing you to stay there if you're just moving into a house? Yeah. Well, the owner, who the hell knows where the owner was? I mean, oh. you know, the owner was on on paper only. I, sure. They may not have even lived in Utah. Yeah. I never saw the owner. No one knew the owner. This was just an abandoned piece of property. And I mean, I know when people first showed up, yeah, they called the power company. They got the power turned on. They got the water turned on. It did not have heat, though. Wow. Um, so for heat in the winter, we had a wood burning stove that we had installed in the front yard, in the front room. And, um, you know, it got awfully cold yeah. in the winter here in Salt Lake. Um, but you know, we may do, and, uh, you know, we kind of, it, it, I think it definitely taught a lot of us some self-reliance skills. So you had a wood stove, but there, there's not a wood stove in every room. It's just, that's right. Our, our rooms had space the- heaters. Okay. Uh, we, you know, we, I, I pretty much all of our bedrooms had space heaters to try to stay warm, but. I mean, to be honest with you, in, yeah, in the winter, we shivered our ass off. Like, it was just cold. it gets cold in Utah. Yeah, it got really cold. It's a cold. desert, but in the winter, I mean, it gets down to like yeah, zero you, you bundle up, night. You yeah. bundle up, and, uh, you know, people did hang out in that room with the wood-burning stove a lot, yeah. crowd together, make some chili, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and get through it together. And uh, community. Exactly, you know. I mean, I think <laughs> yeah. a little I think a little bit of hardship, a little bit of hardship's good for you, actually. Sure. I, no, I think true. maybe one of the reasons... This country kind of right now has a little bit of this kind of malaise yeah. to some degree. I mean, I, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, and I'm sure people are going to accuse me of being privileged and all that. Yeah. But I think for at least some people, um, we're, 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 we're comfortable to the point of not having adversity. And mm-hmm. a little bit of adversity, I think, is actually good for you. Yeah. Um, you know, so, yeah. So we got through it, um, you know. So why did you decide to move into this place? Did you? I mean, well, like, well, the fact that it was free. It was free. Okay. <laughs> you know, I was like twenty years old. Okay. Were um, you in college at the time. Uh, yes, actually, okay. yeah, I was. I was in college, and I was also an after-school teacher. Wow. Um. Yeah, and uh, and I was in my early twenties, I guess. Okay. And um, you know, I had friends of mine who already lived there. Okay. And they basically like extended an invitation. Yeah. And um, it was in, in a kind of a cool part of town. 
yeah, to yeah. actually. So Where I wanted to live it? in that part of town. Uh, pretty near something called Charlie Square, which is pretty close to downtown. Okay. I, I mean, to be honest with you, today, I don't exactly know what's going on with this house today, but that house is easily worth a million dollars today. Wow. Um, I mean, it's it's in a very hot part of town. and yeah. You know the shocking things about real estate in this country? I learned this when I was running for mayor in 2020. Because I don't remember the exact percentage, but especially in Berkeley, commercial property, there's an enormous amount of commercial land that is totally unutilized. Just yeah. some small business owner who owned some company in the 80s that shut down, never got around to selling it. And yeah. so you've got this dilapidated old auto shop that's just sitting there. It's been boarded up for 20 years. Yeah. And you got 2,000 homeless people living in the city of Berkeley and you and a lot of homeless people in Salt Lake City too. And you got all these abandoned homes, abandoned buildings that are sitting there and no one's utilizing them. But just the fact that someone else's name is on the deed prevents anyone from just taking it and making their home. And I guess yeah. you all just took direct action. And said, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a house that's sitting there and no one's using it. Well, to be honest with home, you, like from what we heard from the neighbors, like when people showed up to start squatting that house, it actually improved things. Mm, yeah. I mean, before falling apart. Yeah. yeah. You know, we, we took care of the yard. We maintained things, yeah, you know, before yeah, that, this building sure. was just completely falling apart. It was an eyesore. I think that that's there were like people were using it to shoot up and stuff. Yeah. And we course. actually treated it like our home. home. Um, sure. You know, I mean, even though we may not be the legal owners, you know, we, we improved that place we painted yeah. the whole exterior um you know try to make it as livable as we could yeah um so yeah i mean and, and that that same problem exists here that you just described in salt lake too i mean there's there's abandoned commercial real estate all over that course, just yeah. sits there and weeds grow up all around it and yeah yeah it's, it's too so bad. what did your parents think when you moved into squat house because you were raised by relatively conservative parents who wanted you have a fairly mainstream life I, you know, I mean i don't know my, my my i don't really know that my parents had really strong political leanings okay to be honest with I don't you even mean conservative politically i just yeah mean, the sense i get from the conversations you had with me yeah about your family is your dad's not the sort of person who wants to live in a squat house no, not, not, like not him hippie. for sure yeah <laughs> but it's i mean not like some yeah. hippie was like let's live in the land you know so let's live yeah. free and wild he's a <laughs> yeah He's a pretty normal guy. Well, so so my mom and my dad split up when I was eight. Huh. And, um, you know, I, I, I mostly stayed here in Utah while my dad moved to Texas. Okay. And I would go back and forth between the two a little bit. Um, and, you know, to be honest with you, to, to a pretty large degree, I was a latchkey kid. Um, mm-hmm. My mom, you know, was basically taking care of us on her own for a while. And she would go off on business trips for many days at a time. Um, and I think it was more... I, I honestly feel like they, 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 from a pretty young age, I got a sense of independence and responsibility. Okay. And uh, my parents were always, you know, allowed me to have a lot of freedom, to be oh. honest with you. Um, you know, I mean, I, I remember even when I was in high school, you know, my summer breaks, I was traveling, riding Greyhound buses to visit friends of mine in California. Wow. And they just trusted me to kind of be on my own. So That's unheard of nowadays. It is very when unheard of. I talk of. to parents and kids. Yeah. No, my honestly, I bet my mom, if she had done this, She'd probably be arrested for like child neglect today. But I mean, at the time I I had an enormous, I I was left home alone, even like from a pretty young age. Um, I would walk home in third grade to an empty house and make myself something to eat. And Mm -hmm. I bet you today this, this would be, yeah. Doesn't happen. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I, I like that. I, I think I honestly, I look back on my childhood pretty fondly. Um, like I, I had a lot of adventure. 
um, from a pretty young age. And, um, you know, my parents have always just mostly just been like, hey, you know, whatever you want to do with your life will support it. Mm -hmm. Almost to to a fault, though, if I had to say, because now I've I've, I've been rather directionless my entire life. I don't agree with that at all. (laughs) Relative to most human beings on this planet, you have an incredible amount of direction. I think I'm 37 years old and still thinking whether I should go to law school. I mean, I think that's a little late in life to be having these kinds of thoughts. But you found your purpose in life. Sure. Most people go through their entire lives without finding some sort of higher purpose. Not even, not even a higher purpose, but just any purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think you understand what matters to you, and and I think that gives you a foundation that most human beings on this planet never get. I mean, to the extent people have that sort of foundation, most of them, it's just surviving, Mm -hmm. which is unfortunate because that's. And you talk about, I think Maslow's hierarchy of needs is now a little bit in disrepute. A lot of psychologists say this is actually kind of bullshit. But anecdotally, it's still just kind of a good story. And the idea behind it is there's certain basic needs you have to have met to meet the foundation of our higher purpose. And the highest level yeah. of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is self-actualization. And very few people get there. And I actually think maybe you're not all the way there. Maybe your self-actualization won't happen until you become a lawyer. I don't actually think that's true. Being a lawyer... Who's about to be disbarred permanently, uh, <laughs> which is a totally different story. It's not as great as you might think, but just having found a purpose in life, doing stuff you actually believe in, you know, most people just live as cogs in a machine their entire lives and it sucks, man. It you know, sucks. I mean, you, you can have a purpose in your life, but that doesn't necessarily give you direction on like a granular day to day level. That's true. You know, I mean, I, I, I definitely feel like I, I obviously have for, you know, most of my life had a passion about wanting to see, you know, a world where animals are respected and treated humanely. Yeah. You know, the way we get there is really unclear. Yeah. Um, and and the what role you're going to play on that in as an individual is maybe even less clear. Sure. Um, you know, are you going to play a role of being a professor at university? Are you going to be an attorney? Are you going to be a journalist? Are you going to be someone who, you know, goes into a mink farm and opens the cages? Um, there's lives you know in a squat house and gets raided. Uh, by yes, the FBI. I mean, there's you know, <laughs> there's 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 legitimate uh, arguments to be made for all of these kinds of avenues. I think. And um, for the so record, that's, by the that's way, where, everyone, I just want yeah. to interject and say. I know a lot of dangerous people. You're one of the least dangerous people in the world. So <laughs> the idea, just, I mean, your mannerisms, the, the calmness with which you, you act, uh, the degree to which you assume good faith in others. We've had some experiences where, you know, there is some conflict or controversy around our relationship. And I just think you've handled everything with such an even keel throughout. So the idea that the FBI would see someone like you and your comrades, comrades and compatriots as a, a dangerous threat to the public peace, national security, whatever it was, and I don't actually even know what exactly why they waited. I don't home. even know myself because I don't think. Yeah. Okay, but but which we'll talk about. But it's just so preposterous. Yeah, so preposterous that at least thousands, probably tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars of taxpayer dollars were wasted in raiding a home that you lived in. Yeah, and I mean, you know, no one was arrested as yeah. a result of this. Um, you know, a lot of people permanently lost their property. Yeah. Um, so, Which is another thing people don't know about yeah. getting raided and arrested, that they can just take your stuff and never give it back. Yeah, Even if it's exactly. really valuable. Yep. I, the amount of computer equipment I've lost to the government over the last 10 years, it's got to be in the five figures at least. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think, you know, part of it was that era of animal activism. I mean, I, I definitely feel like in like the late 2000s, you know, obviously you had, you know, for people who have followed kind of the history of the animal rights movement, you had the Shack 7 convictions. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, I, I honestly, and you know, green is the new red was a really red blog at that time. I'm not sure where that's at today, 
Um, but, you know, there's not as much for them to write about. Not quite as much. I mean, I'm not saying, obviously, there's still some repression. I'm talking yeah. to someone going through that. <laughs> but um, it still is a little different than it was then, I it, think. It is. Um, I you know, I, I remember during that time, it was just like every month it felt like I was learning about someone else getting a grand jury subpoena, yep. um, getting, a, you know, e- even people who literally came to like one or two protests were getting, the FBI was showing up at their place of work, mm-hmm. um, knocking on their door at their home, you know, making all their relatives they lived with be like, what in the world did you get yourself into? Um, there was a chilling effect yeah. uh, that I think was pretty, pretty severe at that time. You know, I think the same things would have happened right now, if not for the fact that we've done, I hate to say this, and I'm not trying to be arrogant, We've done a much better job in communications. Sure, I can Circuit see that. 2018, 2019, when all these yeah. raids started happening, we didn't get raided, but some folks close to us got raided. In fact, folks were less involved in some of the so-called illegal work that we were involved in, including in Utah. There's a sanctuary, what, 30 minutes from here? Ching Farm Animal Sanctuary. It's got a new name now. Those raided yeah. by the FBI, too. But the difference is we had... I mean, you were actually telling me the story about how after your home was raided, everyone was like, hush, hush about it and said, like, oh, my God. You know, I, I wouldn't even say you were employed by, I'll let you say that if you'd like to, but your employer's like <laughs> saying, no, we can't talk about this. And I think that was the wrong call. Mm-hmm. Just even from a purely self-interested strategic perspective for the organization, for you personally, I don't yeah. know, the organization necessarily was thinking about your interests. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But yeah. to me, the, and, and, and actually, I mean, our, it, our, our rates yeah. could have gone down the path because the people got raided by the FBI in 20, 2017 and 2018 as a result of the open rescues we did in Utah their first instinct was to do the same. Let's go hush-hush. Exactly. Talk I was about just about this. to say it's that. super yeah. scary and dangerous. And instead, they talked to a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, went on the record completely eventually, and even that one story that Glenn Greenwald wrote was shared 130,000 times and read by at least millions and possibly tens of millions of people all over the country. Yeah. And that, right after that happened, the FBI pulled back from the case. They realized we cannot win this fight when people actually have an open conversation about is Jeremy Beckham a terrorist? Mm-hmm. Like this yeah. mild-mannered, you know, former yeah. Mormon with glasses who plays magic cards and board games at night. Is he public enemy number one? You obviously are not yeah. when we actually have a real conversation. So I, I think there's a couple a couple other differences just in where we're at as a society in 2017 versus 2010. Oh, for sure. Um, and some of it has to do with the media, I honestly think. Um, so we actually, even back then, there was... A little bit of media about this, hmm. it, depending on how you define media. I mean, Green is the New Red sure. had like a blog about it. Our local Alt Weekly, I think, ran an article about it, if I remember correctly. Um, but, you know, at that time, there was greater institutional trust, for one thing. And yeah. what that translated into was, for 98% of people, yeah. their thought was, if the FBI is searching this person's house, they must, have they must be a criminal. Yep. Yeah. Um and I think now there's a little bit more skepticism e- oh, even even huge. in the mainstream yeah like a little more yeah exactly Look at what right? happened on January 6 I mean for better or for worse yeah it, yeah there's in, and on the right and the left alike it's not yeah. just leftists who are skeptical of the government Everybody right is. so I I it's think that the that 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 kind of skepticism you know yep. now allows you to find that Pulitzer yep, yep, Prize yep, winning yep. journalist yep. in the Washington and Post and that Pulitzer and, Prize winning yeah. journalist let's not forget. What did they win that Pulitzer Prize from? I believe it was Edward, Edward Snowden, Snowden yeah. in 2012. Yeah, in my opinion, savings. another landmark event that led to this distrust of institutions, which is yeah. deserved. I'm not even saying that you know that we're, we're necessarily on the whole better or worse yep. with this institutional distrust. It's just a reality that wasn't really a thing then. Yep. And, and just so people know, the Edward Snowden thing was when the federal government was 
secretly surveilling all of our conversations, the NSA, yep. the National Security Agency, in violation of law, yeah. and then lied to Congress about it. And kept and lying then, about it even after the revelations after came out. I and mean, yeah. had gone after Edward Stone and tried to destroy him yeah. over the last, what, 10 to 15 years. They've tried to destroy this guy. And yep. everybody, people on the left, on the right, everybody who's a serious thinker, who's looked at the situation, says, this guy's a hero. Why yeah, he's definitely a hero. He, he risked yep. his job, his freedom to reveal criminal conduct by the yep. U.S. government. We should be applauding him. I, I was and he's folly, sitting yeah. now in Russia, right. <laughs> being protected by Vladimir Putin. Well, that's the only place he could go. I know, you know? it's like, um, seriously, come on. Yeah. Even for our own credibility in the world, why are we going after this guy? Right. So anyways, and I remember when that was, was the guy yeah. who broke that story. Yeah, I remember. He's the one who broke the story about our kind of yeah. situation I with the government as well. I was following that Edward Snowden case at the time really closely. I mean, I was you know, yeah. consuming every single article that came out about it. And I, I, one of the things I remember most distinctly from that era was like, there would be the, the initial article came out about mm -hmm. like the very first Snowden revelation, you know, whatever it was, I think it might've been the metadata mm -hmm. that they were getting everyone's metadata. Yeah. And the, the federal government would come out and be like, well, that was only about this one metadata thing. It wasn't yeah. about all this other stuff. And it was like literally the next right article by. would come mm -hmm. out a few days later. They just proved everything they just barely said was a lie. Yep. And then this this process just kept repeating. Yeah, because they and didn't realize how many documents they didn't they exactly. They didn't everything. realize how many. I think yeah. to this day, there's still a huge cache of documents in the offices at the Intercept, the publication that Glenn Greenwald ultimately founded, that has all these things that people haven't looked through. So yeah, there could be additional disclosures that we find out about government misconduct. It's crazy. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy. But I mean, you know, I, I definitely think that whole thing just had to yeah. shred the credibility of, you know, anyone who followed that. Yeah. All these spokespersons in the national security state, just their credibility was just gone overnight. Yeah. In my, you know, and whatever credibility they had left, which was minimal. For sure. Um, yeah. You know, we kind of jumped ahead and um, <laughs> you didn't even exactly explain what happened. But before you explain that, can I just ask you, who was living there at the time and why did you decide to move into the squat house as a college student? Because it's just yeah. it's not a very normal thing to do. I mean, there were like seven other activists there or oh. something like that. Seven other, you know, I guess they weren't all activists, but seven other like kind of punk activisty types. All punks. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm painting with a bit of a broad brush. I don't okay. know. You know, they, all youngsters causing trouble, you know, in the broadest sense of the term. Good trouble. Good trouble. In the words sure. of the immortal sure. John Lewis. Good trouble. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, definitely a big factor why I moved there too was the fact that it was free. Sure. I mean, you know, when you're in your early twenties and a college student, I mean, you could live somewhere downtown for free because it was yeah. a squat house. So are you going to Utah and, state? Uh, university of Utah. University of Utah. Okay. Yep. University of Utah. And, um, yeah, you know, like that, I guess that's basically it. Like I didn't, I didn't necessarily think of it as much of a significant act at the time. Okay. I was just like, I knew people who lived there and it was free and it was in a, you know, downtown Salt Lake. So sure. Why not? Okay. And by punk, it's it's like a musical community for folks who don't know what that is. You know, in I guess the punk scene started in the seventies probably with the sex pistols, but it became very political for the animal rights movement, the environmental movement specifically, I'd say starting in the nineties, maybe. Maybe a little bit early on that. And in the animal rights movement, I think the peak was actually the early to mid two thousands when you moved in this house. That's when punk and animal rights really came together. Yeah. And, and there was also you know, and here in Salt Lake City there was a, there was you know, a lot of crossover between a lot of the hardcore music scene. Okay. And like straight edge, that was sure. a huge thing. Straight edge music, you know, hardcore music, veganism. I was not personally involved in that at all. Yeah. Like I, I was never my kind of music. Yeah, you listen to like classical. I listen to Elvis Presley. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> This is why I'm saying you're not much of a punk, dude. <laughs> I mean, but like I said, punk's a frame of mind. You don't, don't need the mohawk. that's what punks think. 
I, so the the, the good ones do. Think that. The Most good punks ones do. Think the music is what makes the punk. I don't know about that. All right, maybe I'm wrong. But uh, <laughs> but I mean, what, you know, it's probably different things to different people. Sure. But um, yeah. So I mean, it was it was just it 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 didn't seem like even a hard decision to me. I mean, yeah. it was just you know people who I liked and why not? Yeah, interesting. So why not so move my, somewhere? My free. I think my first interaction in the punk scene because um, I I started doing animal rights activism around the same time and. I was definitely not a punk. I was very straight-laced and didn't... I don't think I even knew what punk was when I got started as an animal rights activist. But a lot of punks would come to stuff I was organizing because there was this intersection and then started hearing names like Earth Crisis and Minor Threat, these bands. They're incredibly influential in the early 2000s. I think some of these bands were influential even before then. Like, I think Minor Threat is from like the 80s, right? So Straight mm-hmm. Edge existed, this concept of Straight Edge, which I think is no drugs, no alcohol. Yep. That's basically no it. It's vegan too. I it, not all of them. All I mean, it depends who you ask, right? Okay. It's one some of these. Some people would say it is. Some people would say it wasn't. Yeah. For minor threat. Veganism was part of it, right? I think so. Okay. Like I said, name... you're talking to the wrong guy. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I I mean, I just know, like, as an observer, yeah. it's undeniable that this like subculture was a significant uh, influence in in yeah, veganism in Salt Lake, especially. It was a very powerful identity um, for a lot of young kids. Oh, yeah, who, a lot of people yeah. who who became even like animal activists for many years after for the sure. subculture died came from, from this hardcore movie. music scene. I mean, yeah, it, it wasn't me, but I definitely saw that yeah. a lot. Yeah. So um, my experience was there were a ton of people coming to the fur protest. We had a fall gras campaign in the mid thousands. I, I swear to God, like fifty percent of these kids were punk kids, and I was like, yeah. who are these people, and why do they all look so different than me? Yeah, I, w- <laughs> I wanted to tell you because I, I like protest. I'm the sort of guy who wears button up shirts and slacks, yeah. and you know sure. they all thought that for sure I was that the first time I went into punk spaces as an activist. This is not the first time I went to show. They all thought I was like an infiltrator for sure because I just look so different. Uh huh. But what were you gonna say? I was just gonna tell you about my my first protest. When you, when you when you look at Jeremy Beckham, <laughs> the thought that comes to your head is not punk. It's slob. No, the thought I was gonna say, which is. Which is, you know, a more positive framing on this is librarian or scholar. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, like I see librarians and scholars. You look like someone who who was a student at the University of Utah, or, or you know, okay. studying public health, which sure. you did study. And yes, like somebody studying public health at the University of Utah, or was it Utah State? Which University one? of Utah. Utah. Both yeah. of them were University of Utah. Yeah. Yep. That's what I think, and yeah, but yeah, maybe you I'm know, not understanding the true nature of punk. Yeah, you know, and 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 like this hardcore scene was like a specific subculture within punk, yeah. and you definitely did see a lot of those people, like you're saying, like when you go to fur protests. Actually, I can tell you the very first protest I ever went to. Okay, here and then in I'll Salt tell Lake. you. I'll finish my story because I didn't okay. actually tell you my first punk show, but I'll tell you. Okay, it's a funny story, but so um, first, the, the story I'm going to tell you, I'm just give you a warning. The story is 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 a case of people violating some of TXE, DXE's uh, core nonviolent tenets. Oh shit! Oh, a little shit. a little bit. Are I we mean, have to edit this podcast now, Jeremy. <laughs> but this is a true story. Okay? okay, this was the first animal rights protest I ever went to, huh. and it was Fur Free Friday 2000. So this was November 2000. I'd only been vegan. Actually, I don't even think I was vegan yet. I think I was vegetarian. Holy shit. Uh, and so November 2000, and I heard about an anti-fur protest in downtown Salt Lake at this fur store called the Blanc Fur that doesn't exist anymore, thank mm-hmm. God. We're all out there protesting. It's the day after Thanksgiving, really busy day downtown, right? Lots of shopping, traffic around, especially because Amazon hadn't taken over everything yet, so people mm-hmm. were still shopping in person. We're there protesting, holding our fur signs. 
and this pickup pulls over and, and I and I'm meeting all these people for the first time and a lot of them are like hardcore kids in all black giant mohawks, ear gauges not mohawks okay. I don't think that's a hardcore thing it okay. was more like head, I see I know shaved heads problem. actually okay. is probably a more common hairstyle you might see but and def- definitely the huge things that yeah the ear gauges yeah. gauges they made so they stretch your lobes they yeah. stretch your lobes so and, your ears are like yeah, times as big as they black clothing are. probably the number one like yeah. fashion thing I think though like uh-huh. very black clothing and um and this is back before black clothing was hot now I everybody so. wears black clothing all the time maybe yeah. punk is the reason black clothing maybe so cool but everybody wears black now but so I was at this fur protest and I was already nervous I was like are we allowed to do this you know the first time you go to a protest I think there's a lot of like you feel like you're breaking a lot of rules oh, are you kidding me even just standing on the sidewalk holding a yeah, sign it absolutely. feels wrong it feels like you're causing a scene <laughs> and all that and so I was like just getting to know all these people are you allowed to do this and all this stuff and this pickup pulls over it was a true story and it was snowing this day this pickup pulls over on the side of the road and someone in the pickup grabs a dead pheasant and throws it out the window at us like right at our feet this dead pheasant that they had shot and killed some hunters or something and immediately these two hardcore kids i'd never met before in my life start chasing after this pickup and they're booking it and the pickup tries to peel out and go up the street but only about half a block up they ran into like bumper to bumper traffic because it's really busy in downtown salt lake so these two hardcore kids they catch up to this pickup one of them reaches into their back pocket and puts on brass knuckles. Holy shit. <laughs> Gets up to this pickup, smashes out the back window wow. of this pickup and like grabs the person in the passenger seat and starts to drag them out of the back of the pickup. Oh my fucking God. <laughs> and when that happened, the pickup actually peeled out and went up onto the sidewalk to get away from the, the people I was with, like the protesters. And they came and I was like watching this all. This is my first protest. And they come back to the protest, and I, and one of them, the one with the brass knuckles, had blood all over their hands. And I was like, oh my gosh, are you okay? You have all this blood on your hand. And he goes, yeah, it's okay. It's not mine. <laughs> oh, my <God. laughs> oh my God. And What and, the fuck? Yeah. And I, and I remember thinking like, is this what every what protest is like? Yeah. And no one tried to stop them or said anything? Well, no. Like They're just I, like, all right, yeah, I guess this is kind of what you're going to do. Oh, I think ever. I mean, as far as us, I mean, I think most of us felt kind of good yeah. about it because these <laughs> assholes just threw a pheasant at us. Like, I mean, oh there, God, there's, there's to some degree, I mean, yeah, we have to be nonviolent and peaceful sure. and all that, but at some point you also have to have some self-respect. Sure. And if yeah. people, you know, are kind of initiating aggression on you, and I think throwing a dead animal at somebody yeah. is essentially initiating aggression. Oh, it's, it's an assault. You know, it's it is an assault. an assault. Oh, I'll tell you another example of an assault. Yeah. Can I tell you one more, you Please. know, sort of similar story from Salt Lake? You know, maybe all these stories, if you add them up all together, is why, you know, you know our house was raided by the cops at some point. I don't this, know. And this story is going to synergize very well with my story of being in a punk show. <laughs> and not even in a hardcore show, because I actually don't really understand the difference between hardcore and punk i think there is a difference but i never got deep enough to understand it but continue your story yeah yeah but there was another one i was at um there was a local restaurant here in salt lake at the time called the metropolitan Hmm. that sold foie gras their phone number was 801 foie gras it was their signature dish and And foie gras is the fatty liver of a duck yeah it's it's, basically force fed for months every single day basically they they actually induce a disease in the ducks and and geese called fatty lipidosis Mm -hmm. they force feed them grain basically and it's it's banned entirely in the state of california that's right they actually banned it in chicago around the same time period and then it got reversed which we were talking about a little earlier yeah one of the worst legislated defeats in the history of the animal rights and we learned a lot from it but yeah anyway so that's foie gras is really awful stuff it is and 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 just just as you pointed out this was a time in the movement when there was a lot of attention on foie gras Oh, yeah. Chicago, I remember that. Chicago yeah, you're on banned the front foie page gras. Of the Wall Street Journal. 
Yeah, exactly. This was like 2007, I want to say. First city in the nation to ban foie gras. Yeah. First within 11 months, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> but we were out there protesting this restaurant. We'd been out there like for several months, uh-huh. uh, every Friday night. It was a weekly thing we did. Every Friday night, we picketed this restaurant. Really, I think, hurt their business, to be honest with you. I'm like, sure people did. didn't want to cross a picket line on a Friday night to go enjoy a meal. Yeah. So we're out there every Friday night. We're out there one night on Christmas Eve. It was freezing cold outside. We're picketing, doing our normal thing, and one of the servers came out with a pitcher of ice water mm-hmm. and started pouring ice water on one of the activists in freezing cold weather Damn. and said something like, you know, were you thirsty or something like that, started pouring ice water on one of these wow. activists. And one of the other activists who was there punched this guy in the face, Jesus. just laid him out, just, you know, swung a, a haymaker, wow. hit this guy right in the face. And was this the owner? Or was this a it server? was a server? Just a server. And Why the does owner do that? I guess he, you know, they were so angry at us for being at their business week after week. And you know, I think that they had reached some sort of breaking, breaking point, point. Yeah. where they were so irritated that we were there that you know he came out and he couldn't take it anymore. And we were obviously we were completely within our rights. We we're out on a yeah. sidewalk protesting, but he snapped. And the owner actually came out and was like, you know, you know, whatever his name was, Jerry, get back here, get in here. You know, she was freaked out that yeah. this guy had just done this. And, and now his face was all bloody because an Jesus. activist had punched him in the face. Um, but that night they took foie gras off the menu. Wow. So, and, and, and nothing ever happened to this activist. I think, you know, it was, it was known to even the authorities. advocating violence in the animal rights well, on I, this podcast? I, think, I, I don't think it's violence Do I need someone... to call you out? <laughs> Do I need to cancel you on the I'm spot? just saying the result of all this was that foie gras <laughs> came off the menu. Yeah. And, you know, this was somebody acting in defense of another. No, I understand. Right? So I, I will say, I, I think that I, I believe in strategic nonviolence. Um, there have been time periods in human history where violence might have been the right thing to do. I mean, people always give the kind of cliched, trivial examples like, well, what would you have done with the Nazis? You know, that sort of thing. Or the yeah. Civil War. Or the Civil War. Would you have just like yeah. let the South continue? And I, even though I am strategically nonviolent, which is to say, I don't think... So, for example, if, if somebody were in this room, had a, a gun to your head, and it just factually was the case, the only way I could possibly stop him was to, to punch him in the leg and knock him over. That's violence. But it would be justified, and I think the world would be a better place. But I do think once you start talking about activism and social change and building systems, once you start, because that's it's not like we're building a policy out of this interaction between you and me and this third party is trying to kill you. It's just an interaction where I'm trying to defend you. The problem is when political activists use it, and 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 activism becomes tainted by violism, violence. Even if you're successful, it becomes ingrained in the DNA of the policies you're trying to enact. And this is part of my family's mm. history. I've written about this because I actually think Mao Zedong and the communists, you know, they were, they were doing righteous work. If you understand how peasants were being fucked in China in the 1930s and 40s, you've got these ultra-rich people supported by Western imperialists who have benefited off of things like even the opium wars. I and mean, the opium wars were kind of China versus Europe, but also kind of elite Chinese against poor Chinese who were all getting addicted by opium for 100 years. And you're seeing all your crops getting taken away, your daughters being raped and pillaged and human trafficked by Westerners and Easterners who are collaborating with them. They've controlled the country for 100 years. Like, you're going to fight back, you know? Mm -hmm, And and mm -hmm. that's. But the problem is when you fight back with violence, which is what Mao ultimately did, you create a police state that ends up killing more people than any government has killed in the history of human civilization. And that's the problem when activists do this because that punch, while it might have succeeded at getting Fogger off the menu, it also became a part of the DNA of the local animal rights movement and affected the way you were perceived, the way 
that you perceived yourselves affected policies that you'd create both organizationally internal to the movement and even policies you'd create mm-hmm, for society mm-hmm. as a whole. Sure. You know, so I mean, th- there's, th- there's all kinds of downstream effects that happen. I agree with that. And there's, there's obviously backlashes yeah. and there's negative blowback and consequences. I think it's a pretty complicated picture though. Um, I don't think this is a new debate. Um, you know, I think even Enlightenment thinkers were thinking about things like the French Revolution. Absolutely. You know, and what the French Revolution, how that turned into a reign of terror and kind of mm-hmm. got out of hand. But on the other hand, they were, you know, doing things like comparing the French Revolution to the American Revolution. Yeah. You know, where, I mean, obviously the American Revolution, you know, I guess we could, people would maybe debate this now. But I think generally speaking, at the time, you know, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution was, you know, an, an advancement in social organization, mm-hmm. you know, it was the first time that you had things like free speech codified into a constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that experiment basically worked. Yeah. And, you know, it, I mean, it, I don't know how much that got baked into the DNA or didn't get baked into the DNA or, you know, how much, you know, John Brown's act of violent resistance against slavery, did that get baked into the DNA of how this country treated slavery in the future? I mean, I think we basically were able to just move past slavery, at least chattel slavery. It was, it, you know, we made a huge leap forward um, after the Civil War and the 15th Amendment. So, you know, it's, it's complicated. It is complicated. I think if you'd ask all the many people's across this nation and the world who suffered at the hands of human violence and American imperialism, they'd say the experiment was not so good. And, and even if you think it's better than the world that existed beforehand, which is you know, essentially a monarchy, right? Um, doesn't mean that's the best world we could have created, right? And, it, it, and I'm not saying we should yeah. let perfection be the enemy of the good. Obviously, sometimes, just like in, in an idyllic world, if I could have just calmly persuaded someone not to shoot you in the head that would have been better and maybe it's just not literally not possible not psychologically physically possible i didn't have time to save him better thing to do is just kick him in the leg especially i'm not going to hurt him that badly but i I can imagine a scenario where the the founding fathers used nonviolent methods of revolution Hmm. as gandhi did in india at least to some extent i mean there was what about with slavery do you think there would have been a way to end american slavery i think a nonviolent revolt would have been more powerful and Hmm. i think i mean and this is not just you can trade anecdotes all you want and feelings and people can have different sympathies. And, you know, my sympathy partly comes from just personal experiences. Cause I know there was a time in life when I was a bully and I used physical violence and I don't know if I ever told you this story. I had this like really traumatic experience where I was bullied for a long time and I won't go into this too much cause I'm going to hear more about your stories. But, and I, I ended up bullying one kid who was like a disabled kid who had a fucked up hand and couldn't even write properly. He was, his upper body was really weak. And I bullied him mostly because I just thought this is what we do. And it was my one chance of claiming some power in a school where I was very weak and didn't have a lot of status. And then I ended up getting confronted by it, by his mom. Um, and I just couldn't believe it. I just, I went back in my home. I didn't cry on the spot, but it's like 12 years old. And I went weeping back in my bedroom and like put my head into my pillows and was crying for like days. Cause partly because just the shame of being accused of being a bully, but more the, the guilt of feeling mm-hmm. that her words were true that I had used violence against someone who was weaker than me. And I felt like it was self-defense because while this guy was physically weaker than me, he was, I mean, he was a white kid. So people used to always make fun of me for having slanty eyes and being a chink and all this shit. And he, he had like, he hadn't really done most of the worst stuff, but it's like a terrible thing where the weak kind of turn on each other <laughs> in situations like this. Cause you feel like you have to, you don't have any choice. A powerful person can defy 
the logic of the culture you're in because you're powerful. But if you're weak, you just kind of have to buy into it. If people are making fun of this guy, and we both did it. Like I made fun of him for being disabled. He made fun of me for being Chinese. And I felt like I was protecting myself by pushing him around. And I just think it does, it does something to you when you use violence. It's very, very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anyways, that's kind of where I'm coming from. But the last point I want to make is it's not just about my feeling or your feeling. There's just enormous amount of evidence now. Like Omar Wasau did a really important study of the civil rights movement finding that in areas of the country where there was nonviolent protest, support for civil rights legislation went up dramatically. In areas of the country where there was violent protest, it stayed even or went down. And Erica Chenoweth's work, work studying, I think it was like 130 different nonviolent, or not nonviolent, 130 social movements all over the world over the last half century and finding that the nonviolent movements were, I think, twice or three times as successful um, at achieving their mm. goals than the violent movements. So I, Yeah, well, the, the, the problem with that, though, I see, is that none of these movements are operating in a vacuum. I mean, e- even where geographically there may be a nonviolent movement, it's, you know, it's still going to be happening in the context of a broader movement where other people may be being violent. Yeah. Right? And so I, I don't necessarily know that you can disentangle them that neatly. Yeah, that's true. So like um, Omar Wasau, who's a professor I, I, at Princeton, yeah. one of the arguments people have made against his research is that the nonviolent movements in regions of the country, like, you know, say Montgomery, Alabama, where King did his first sit-in campaign, were only successful because there was a threat of violence <laughs> elsewhere. People saw what was happening sure, in other places. A flanking effect. Yeah, yeah. like, you know, in, in Oakland, I'm getting the chronology wrong because the Black Panthers came after the Montgomery bus boycott. But the, the logic is the same. Something like that would have happened where Black Panthers are coming out armed in a very kind of at least threatening way. The Black Panthers, for the record, were way more nonviolent than most people think. Like, I, I don't think the Black Panthers ever, actually, I, I, I'm not sure about this, but I don't think they ever killed any officers. Do you know if that's true? I actually don't know. I'm pretty sure that's true. So they carried around guns all the time and talked to a good game. And they had a menacing appearance. But they didn't actually do it. They just said, we're going to protect ourselves. If you sure. come and raid our homes and kill our kids, kill our people, we will fight back. We're gonna, and you know, we have the Second Amendment, so they're allowed to do that. But maybe it was the fact that things like the Black Panthers existed, even with the, the threat or the menacing presence of potential violence that led people like yeah. King or, or John Lewis when he was marching in Selma to be as successful as he was. Yeah. I think that's a reasonable argument. I, I also think I, I have a bit of baseline skepticism with, the, with even the, the notion that we can easily study social change. Yeah. I think there's just so many factors that go into this. I mean... You know, we shouldn't obviously we shouldn't treat it like a totally random occurrence. We should try to understand it a little bit, but I think that often scholars get a little overconfident in their theories. They hunt for data that kind of confirms that. I think social change is often wildly unpredictable. Yeah. And before it happens, people don't see social change coming lots of times. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, obviously there was the, you know, Rosa Parks happened, right? And at the time, that did capture the national attention, and it sparked like a million mm-hmm. copycat sit-ins and broad bus boycotts and everything. But there were actually a lot of people exactly like Rosa Parks who had done the same thing before for many years, okay. if you go back and look at it. Yeah. But none of them happened to be the one yeah. that did this. And so a scholar at that time looking at it would say, you know, refusing to get off your, you know, get out of the seat. All that does is, is make the Southern, the white Southerners hate you more. You're inconveniencing them. And we haven't seen it lead to any kind of civil rights litigation yet. And, and, and so it's just hard to know how all these things end up kind of adding up and, and, and creating some kind of change, I think. Yeah. 
I think but, it's a fair point, but I, I think there are some things we can generalize from many different nations, many different social, environmental, and political contexts. And I don't think there's a lot of these lessons we can learn. I can probably count them on one hand, at least the things that I think are considered laws of social change. Sure. And I think one but of them I is nonviolence. Another all one is innovation. Of, yeah. You know, is what innovation. Then innovation. You have to be able to yeah. adapt. Like you cannot just keep doing the same thing. I definitely think for like broad top level concepts like that, we should be thinking about them and learning from history and all of that. But I guess what I'm just getting at is like social change is so complex and there's so many things that go into it. Like even just technology and the media environment. I mean, how different is the world today? Yeah. In, in so many ways. I mean, you know, when you're looking at comparing different parts of the country and how the civil rights movement was received, I mean, we didn't even have the internet then, yeah. let alone social media and people being glued to phones now. And the way the way we work is so different now. Our whole family structures are so different now mm-hmm. than they were in the 1560s. The fact that we're like not nearly as religious mm-hmm. as we were then. Society's changed, so the backdrop upon which this social change is happening is so different now that it's just something to think about. And, and that, you know, you may not be able to apply those lessons directly to today. Yeah. The, the humility you're encouraging is actually a very important lesson. And I think the best scholars are humble. It's usually journalists who are adapting somebody's work who make the more extravagant and strong claims about sociology, mm-hmm. political science, and economics that study social change. I found the scholars themselves are usually fairly humble, including Erica Chenoweth. I mean, she's a professor at Harvard who's famous for coining the term the rule of 3.5%. You know, the idea behind it is in every movement in history where 3.5% of the population has been engaged in sustained nonviolent Civil resistance, yeah. which is basically I, the right wingers actually adopt that a lot. They do a lot of I see adopt the it. three percenters. Yeah, I'm, a, no, I'm one. Of, yeah, no, I, I, yeah. Everybody yeah. adopts it because it's and you know while it's called, I actually think there's some truth to that. There is some truth to it because yeah. anytime you have mass mobilization, three percent might not seem like. Hello, can you hear me? Hello, yeah, looks good. Okay, my my track might be a little soft than yours. So I, I fucked up and did not realize that our SD card went out of space. So we're, is we're this part going to end up in the podcast? This is going to end up in the podcast. Up? I fuck up so many times. This is why you need an audio person and why notwithstanding the fact that we do have nice mics, this is still very much an amateur podcast. Um, Just but call it's actually, the NSA. They got the backup on file. I'm sure they do. But it, you know, maybe it's a good segue because we're going off in a lot of different directions and we're getting to the good part of this story. I mean, this has all been good. Uh, sorry, that was, that was like a backhanded compliment. Finally, we're getting to the good. Part I think of the we're story, actually getting Jeremy. to the boring start, boring <laughs> no, part. But um, but because we had we had started this conversation about how I, I I can't believe I realized I just realized now this is not the house that was raided. I thought it was this house. This nope. time, and every time I came, I was like, I would even imagine the FBI agents. I was thinking, about, I wonder where they went and wow, you know, what entrance they came. You're to. a lot more obsessed with this event than I am, and I lived it was, through it. I mean, because I've never had my house raided. I've always been afraid of a raid. So I don't know if I've shared this with you because I have, um, I had an aggressive dog until fairly recently. She died in October, sadly, and it was yeah. a terrible death. And I've written about that, and I had, I did a podcast about Lisa, but I'd always just been scared of the idea of people raiding my house and shooting my dogs, which happens all the time. It does. I, I think it's at least hundreds and maybe thousands or tens of thousands of dogs are killed. Yeah, I bet almost year. no one's even collecting data on no that. No one collects data, and yeah. no one cares. There's a. Uh, a federal court case, a court of appeals case. I, I think we might have even talked about this before. Just an awful case where this Michigan couple, I don't think they were even themselves involved in the drugs, had a no-knock warrant executed in their home. Um, this is a really grim story. But they had two pit bulls. And the pit bulls, understandably, there's these 
big men smashing their doors down, running in. They're just barking and growling at the people. They shoot one of the dogs who collapses on the grounds and is just whining. Um, they shoot the other dog who's just injured but can still walk. That dog is slowly beaten to death. And so she runs into her basement, um, into the basement, and is just cowering in the corner of the basement and, and just whining. But she's whining so loud, the officers come down and think, this dog's going to notify people we're here, and they kill the other dog too. Wow. And then afterwards, the guy sued the police because he, he wasn't even involved in the drugs. These were, he was just living there where someone else apparently, I don't think they even found drugs there, but he was just living there with someone who apparently was involved in dogs. And he tried to sue them for some sort of compensation. And the court of appeals held, this is a lawful use of force. Yeah. Or maybe they had qualified immunity yeah, or something. Totally fucked up. Yeah. Um, so raids have always been on my mind ever since reading that case and hearing about that story and just thinking about how dangerous that is. Because in many ways, I'm more terrified of a raid than incarceration because of the amount of violence that can be inflicted very quickly on people who are not expecting it. Mm -hmm. But tell us about the raid at your house. How did this happen? You go from being a, you were working, I think you were saying, at an animal nonprofit, a very mainstream and large animal nonprofit at the time at this house because it's rent free. And you're going to college at the same time? Or maybe I just graduated. You just graduated. Yeah, I just finished my undergrad. Yeah. And knowing the salaries at your typical <laughs> better live in a squat. Better understand why you might be forced to squat. But tell us the story of what happened. On that yeah. Day. Well, I mean, I remember I was working from home even back then. You know, it's become more very common these days. But back then it was a little more uncommon. And I was up, you know, like seven in the morning working. I was the only person awake at the house. And there was just a banging at the door. Just this relentless banging at seven in the morning. And I looked out the window and... Like I said, I was the only one awake in the house. Everyone else is asleep. But I look out the window, and I saw like eight to ten guys dressed very plainly, um, wearing like cargo shorts and cargo pants, you know, plain white t-shirts. None of them had any kind of identifying markings. You know, that's a kind of a difference in my experience versus what you might see in the movies. You know, they weren't, they had no shirt that said police or FBI or anything like that. Why do you think that was? Uh, do you have, do you I, I don't really know. Actually, okay. that's a good question. I don't know that. But they were banging on the door. One or, one or two of them had, I, you know, I remember seeing one specifically had a gun at their side, at their hip. Mm-hmm. So I saw that they were armed and they were banging on the door at seven in the morning. And I mean, I was pretty freaked out immediately. And my first thought actually was, oh my God, the people from Morgan, Utah found us. They've tracked down where we lived. And what, what, that, what that was about was just a few months before this, um, Animal activists, and, and you know, including myself, had organized a march in the town of Morgan, Utah, for Fur Free Friday because there are more mink farms in Morgan County, Utah, than any other county in the country. They're like, I don't know, at the time there were something like a dozen mink farms in this small town. Mm-hmm. So we marched up their main street. There were probably seventy or eighty of us, and it was wild. Like the whole town, pretty much, came out and counter-protested us, wow. and they were waving guns. And they were flinging dead mink over their heads. Um, It was one of the Mormons, probably, probably a lot of them were, probably most of them were. Um, And actually, literally, like the the woman, I don't remember her name, but the woman who ran Fur Commission USA at the time, Mm -hmm. she flew out to join the counter protest. And um, it was it was honestly one of the craziest protests I'd ever been at. It honestly, like probably more than any other protest I've ever been at, I actually did feel unsafe. Wow. Like um, I, I really thought one of these people was going to shoot us. Mm-hmm. Like they were so angry that we were there, and our protest was totally lawful and totally peaceful. We had to actually sue the the, the town. Actually, passed an ordinance 
saying you could not protest in Morgan within a thousand feet of a fur farm. Wow. And this is true. There are so many fur farms in Morgan that when you put it out on a map and drew a 1,000-foot radius around each one, it meant that you couldn't protest in Morgan. Wow. Everywhere within Morgan was at the time was within 1,000 feet of the property line of a fur farm. Why the hell are there so many fur farms in Morgan, Utah? Yeah, I don't know the historical reasons for that, huh. but Utah in general... It's like hot. Well, in you the summer, like, no, in the, the winter it was very cold. Okay, but the um, summers have got to be super hot. That can't be good for the mink, can it? Yeah, I mean, they're not hot weather animals. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, it's you know, I, they 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 want to grow those coats in October and November, and it's going to be okay. cold then. Um, and so Utah, Utah has more mink farms than either state in the country, yeah. as you know, state wise. To this day, that's true. It's Utah and then Wisconsin is that it's right? It's Utah and then Wisconsin. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, back then there were even more mink farms. You know, now there's something like 30, 35. Back then there were like over 100. Wow. Um, and so we were there protesting. This whole town was just so, you know, we had to sue them in federal court and get a, a court order from a judge allowing us to even be there. The town didn't even want us to be there at all. We had to sue them, win that right. And we were there and they were so angry. And so I honestly thought. When you say we, was this just local grassroots activists? Yeah, you know, it was some. Or was this the Utah Animal Rights Coalition or. I think it was actually a precursor kind of organization. I, I think it was actually called SLAM, Salt Lake, Slam? <laughs> Salt Lake Animal Advocacy Movement. I think that's what that's it was so called. Funny. You know, one of these tiny, you know, it's funny. At that time, there were all these small little grassroots yep, yep. things. That wasn't that uncommon. You know, now I don't think those kinds of things are that common. But Yeah, I started like 10 of these in Chicago. <laughs> it means, yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they, these things would sometimes all exist for names. less than a year. Yeah. And, you know, you'd spend all this time in a meeting debating the acronym, yeah. right? Like, does that, can you pronounce that acronym? Is that yeah. catchy? But um, anyway, so, you know, I, I honestly believed that morning when, when, when the FBI was, you know, pounding on our door, I looked out the window and I thought, holy shit, the people, and they looked kind of like, like Morgan the sort of like Morgan, Utah yeah. rednecks, sort of, frankly. Huh. And I thought the people from Morgan somehow tracked down where we lived. Because you were the organizer and, of this march. Yeah, Literally I think the whole house was probably at that march, or half okay. the house was at that march. Yeah. And I thought, holy shit, they tracked down where they lived and they're here to like kick our ass or something or start a fight. Like, and I was actually a little scared at that, you know? And I it's remember. So non Mormon. I mean, aren't Mormons like peaceful people, polite to everybody? I mean, it, there's, there's, you know, there's two sides, sides of Mormons, of right? I mean, Brigham Young was also like, you know, yeah. a wartime general. Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely that side of it too. And, you know, sure. there was, there very famously was this thing called the Mountain Meadows Massacre where Mormons massacred a lot of people actually in Southern Utah. Huh. Who did they massacre? Uh, like Native Americans. People? Yeah. Yep. Wow. And, uh, you know, so there's, there's definitely that side of Mormon history as well. So it's a complicated history. Um, but, you know, and, and, you know, they, they probably perceived it. If I'm going to try to like, you know, speak in their defense, sure. you know, they probably viewed it as they were all coming out to defend, defend their neighbors, yeah. defend their neighbors against these crazy outsiders yeah. coming to ruin their way of life. I'm sure that's how they saw it, you know? So they, they probably thought, they didn't view themselves as, as being impolite or violent or aggressive yeah. or anything. They viewed it. They viewed themselves as defending their friends sure. and their neighbors. From violent, aggressive, exactly. You know, people. yeah. Conflicts yeah. complicated like that. It is complicated. So, anyways, they were pounding on our door, and uh, I went and woke up a friend at the house, and I said, "Hey, the people from Morgan, I think, are here, dude. I think the people from Morgan are here." And I didn't want to open the door by myself, so the both of us opened the door. And as soon as they, we opened the door, the person at the door said, search warrant, search warrant, search warrant. And like, you know, said, I mean, they said the word search warrant. And then my friend was like, can I see it? Huh. And they held it up in front of her face for like five seconds. And I could see our address yeah. on it. And I actually at that moment was felt relief. Huh. 
because it wasn't the Morgan because it wasn't the Morgan people <laughs> at that moment. In that moment, I was like, OK, God, I'm being raided by the FBI. <laughs> in that moment, that was what I thought. And then and, and then, of course, I was like, oh, shit, this sucks, though, you know. And so they, they just you Im- might be the only person in the year 2010 <laughs> who's raided the FBI. Who felt a sense of relief after just in that moment, you know? (laughs) But so anyway, they they streamed into the house and they rounded everyone up in all the rooms, brought them all in the front room. And um, I remember when we all sat down there, one of the first things I said was, I said, they are going, I said this out loud, even to all, you know, my friends we lived with, I said, they are going to remove every single phone and computer from this house. Yeah. And that's exactly what they did. They removed every single phone and computer from the house. What did it say on the search warrant? Do you remember? Um, like evidence related to animal enterprise terrorism, okay. animal enterprise terrorism was all over the warrant. Like so there were like eight, there were like eight things itemized, but they all were like plans and documents related to animal enterprise okay. terrorism, computer files related to animal enterprise terrorism. It was all about that. Yeah. Cause there's a particularity requirement in search warrants. You can't just say if they had just said evidence related to animal enterprise terrorism, that's probably an invalid search warrant. I don't know. I, I mean, you I, remember. you might be right. Yeah. You I don't know if anyone ever, anything. I never challenged anything. Okay. Um, Which is I don't, a scary thing to do. Fighting with the federal government is not easy. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think people were just pretty scared yeah. at the time. A lot of people were. Um, and also just trying to get back on our feet. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I remember, you know, they, they were in the house for, as crazy as it sounds, I think they were in the house for close to 12 hours. Wow. Um, you know, they just tore everything apart and just every single place they could look, every thumb drive they could find, you know. Mm-hmm. It was it was a list of like fifty things that were taken from the house. They gave us an itemized list of everything they took, and it was like fifty things. Okay. And, and did uh, they detain you while this is happening? We were all detained no... in the front room. Okay. Yeah, and people asked to leave, and they were like, "No." Huh. I mean, I you don't know what I mean. That's like a weird thing. I don't know what the rules are. Actually, I don't know either. And it, but here's the thing: it almost doesn't matter what the rules yeah, are because they the they're exactly they're there with the guns. And here's the other thing that was really scary at that time for me was this feeling of no one else in the outside world even no, knows this happened. is happening. Yeah, we're all there. You know, we can't pick up our phone and call somebody yeah. because they're taking all of our phones. Sure. And we're all being detained. And, and there was just this sense of, and you know, they were, they were carrying guns. They weren't pointing guns at us. I guess I'll give them, quote, credit for that. Yeah. Um, you know, we didn't have guns pointed at us. Thank but, God the FBI didn't threaten to kill you. <laughs> but they, had, they all were armed. and um yeah, and uh, they, you know, they they just took everything, and they were there for like twelve hours. And um, when they all left, did you say anything else to each other? I mean, I guess you're we were all about this because we, we, I think we were all pretty savvy with okay. police. Don't speak, and police. we didn't say really a word. Yeah, um, you know, besides, like, does anyone want some coffee? Then we made a pot of coffee while they were searching our house. Okay, we asked permission. Can we go make coffee? Yeah, it was seven in the morning. People were woken up this way, other oh, than me. Sure. Everyone was everyone. Yeah. Everyone else in that house pretty much had an agent shake them out of bed. Yeah, they were oh. sleeping. Um, huh. So um, that's got to be a terrifying experience. Yeah, to yeah. Be woken up by an FBI agent who's shaking you and saying, yeah. "Get out of bed, go into the corner of the room." Yeah, I mean, it wasn't fun. You know, I I don't know. If terrifying. People probably took it in different ways. Um, but I mean, you know, when they left at the end of that after twelve hours, you know, there was also just this sense of everyone felt hobbled because i mean you know even at that time i mean a lot of your life is on on your phone on your computer for sure and it was just all of us it was gone like it yeah. literally was like we had to like go walk to a friend's house to make a call to a lawyer mm-hmm. like even when they left like we couldn't communicate to the outside world what yeah. had just happened 
Um, you know, so that was that just took a lot of work getting all of our stuff, you know, buying replacement stuff. Um, you know, it was disabling, you know, just having that that happen for sure. But, um, you know, it was yeah, the 12 years ago and we got through it. Technology is different now. What and the ACLU has an app that does this too. But we always suggest to people if you're in a raid and it's it's only happened a couple of times, if mm. it never happened to me, is one, you know, first object to anything that they do openly and publicly that's not clearly within the scope of the search warrant even if it is clearly within the scope scope of the search warrant because anything that you well if i have to, to well, we didn't see the search warrant until they were done searching that's messed up yeah that's it was not it was when they left they were like here's the warrant they left yeah. a copy of it on the table yeah, so because you we should, had, during, you should have a right to see the search warrant and review in, it. in the moment we did not okay it was not until they were done searching the completely done. say to people is is just live stream the entire thing from the moment you start doing it well, I mean, if we were you holding a phone, yeah, they if we were holding it. a phone pointing at them, they would just take it from our hand, and that's evidence yeah. now. I mean, is for sure. Yeah. So we, yeah, they they did remove every pretty much everything that plugged in. Yeah. You know, no. was taken. Even if you get like fifteen seconds, you know that that's good, and it goes on Facebook Live. And even if they shut the phone down right there, it'll it'll be on the permanent record, and it'll be public. Other people can find out about it and see. Sure. It. The ACLU is a app app that does a similar thing, but not doesn't post it on Facebook Live, so it's not public. It just goes to the ACLU. In light of all the police misconduct that's occurred in this country. I mean, yeah. police misconduct, misconduct has been occurring since 1776. Police misconduct is one of the reasons the revolution happened. Right, right. You know? So this is, it's, it's, it's as old as this country. It's as, it's as old as the institution of law enforcement. Right. The authorities, wherever there has been authority, authority has been used in a, in a wrongful way. Yeah. But um, the ACLU over the last you know, five years since Eric Garner, Michael Brown, they developed an app that automatically sends, even if your phone's deleted, automatically streams to the aclu the video footage that you record and facebook live will do the same thing yeah the difference i is actually facebook think live my, my yeah i use dropbox i think mm. dropbox actually has a, has a similar feature does it you yeah. can actually record something instantaneously to dropbox well all of my it? files on my phone are backed up on dropbox okay. in real time okay so, so if just, i if i snap a, a picture of you right now on my phone it's going to be on my dropbox yeah, as long as the phone as long as the phone's on if somebody turns it yeah. off, it's probably yeah. So. Yep, as long as the phone's on and, yeah. and has access to okay. data or Wi-Fi or whatever. So, what were your what were your thoughts at the time? I mean, first of all, what did you you felt a sense of relief initially because it wasn't the people from Oregon that had beat you up? How did it change after that? I mean, at some point, you must have felt some sort of anxiety about this. Yeah, sure. I mean, I obviously, I mean, I also knew that there was no criminality. Yeah, there's nothing. So there. you know, I, I felt. I guess relieved on that end of it. Yeah. Honestly, just the main thing, I mean, this was 12 years ago. Again, you know, I don't necessarily remember play by play how I felt. The main thing I remember was just how disabling it felt. Honestly, just to have all of our devices just immediately and things weren't backed up. Yeah. Back then too. Um, I've even to this day, I have a habit of um, collecting uh, like photos and video of things related to animal rights and animal abusing industries. And, you know, on my hard drive and on my computer, I had just thousands of pictures that mm-hmm. were irreplaceable um, that, you know, were just gone. Yeah. And to this day are just gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and just how, you know, that that just felt crummy, like yeah. just losing years and years of, of data. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, I mean, there was just, there was that. And, um, and you it know. it hurts you personally, too, and financially, because if 
they take thousands of dollars. I mean, absolutely you're living in yeah. a squat house because you're poor. <laughs> there was debt. Yeah. I remember in the immediate so like, future in, in the immediate thousand yeah. dollars equipment can be 10% of your yearly income. In the immediate near future that. after this, like after this happened in the immediate near future, there was like a house computer, uh-huh. you know, we, we were all we'll had to share. share. Yeah. yeah. We all had to share it. Cause there was eight people's worth of stuff. Yeah, Once um, taken, but, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly not fun, but, um, you know, it's still nothing compared to what animals go through, you know? Sure. So it's, 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 it, you know, it, there's that old quote, was it Frederick Douglass? I forget. The rain without thunder. thunder. That's Frederick Douglass. You know, you're never going to have social change without upsetting the powers that be. Yeah. And, you know, you're just fooling yourself if you think that you're going to not occasionally poke the bear. Yeah. One of my favorite versions of that same statement is the MIT Media Lab, which is talking about not just innovation in the context of politics and morality but just all sorts of innovation including you know technological economic innovation uh they're the slogan of the lab i think it's a slogan the model of the lab it might just be the informal slogan is no one ever changed the world by following or doing what they're told you've got to break the rules you've got to challenge some sort of authority structure if you're going to change the world mm-hmm. in small ways or large did you ever figure out why this raid happened? Do you think it was related to this protest you had done a week previously? I mean, I don't know. I, I don't even want to speculate either. Okay. Um, you know, it, I just know it was about animal enterprise terrorism. Okay. Um, so, I mean, it was definitely related to animal rights activism. Okay. And so what happens after that? You know, you're, you're raided, you have yeah. a 12 hour period. And what are you doing? I mean, you're, so you're just sitting there literally, you can't work anymore because they're taking your computer, right? And you're working remotely. And everyone in the house is just sitting in the living room. Is this a living room? Yep. And is yes, there an agent firm. there? Does he talk to you? Oh, I mean, is there were like 20 agents in the house throughout the house. Okay. Um, and is everyone they, just they, quiet, they, just staring at each other? <laughs> I think they, they tried to talk with us, you know, um, but we were pretty, we were, we had a wall of silence. Okay. Um, Which from, is the right thing. That's what every criminal defense lawyer will tell you. Yeah. And so, I mean, even when they were just like, you know, I don't remember what, this again, this was 12 years ago, but you know, if they were even like, how's your day or something, we didn't mm-hmm. answer it. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, we just were made it pretty clear that we weren't going to have any kind of conversation with them. Were they friendly? Were they trying to play tough guy? No, they weren't friendly. They weren't friendly. <laughs> no, they weren't friendly at all. Okay. So they were which is, I mean, guy. which is fine. Like, you yeah. know, I would almost be, you know, if they're friendly, they're trying to trick you. a little more you. insidious, I know. Yeah, if yeah. they're friendly, they're trying to trick you. Huh. But, um, yeah, so. So you're sitting there for 12 hours. You're not talking to each other. You're not talking to the cops. Yep. You make a cup of coffee. <laughs> yep. <laughs> were you able to leave to get food or to do anything else? No. They didn't let you leave. Nope. Did anyone, I mean, surely someone had something they just had to do. I Actually, mean, they, they, they let one of us go to work. Okay. They did let one of us go to work. Huh. And, um, but Why it was really funny. And what was really funny was other people asked to go to work and they told them no. Wow. But one of us went to work and was almost as soon as that person left to go to work, they did call an attorney. Really? That we knew. Yeah, okay. a local attorney named Stuart Gollin, yeah. who uh, passed away a couple of years ago, really tragically. He was a fantastic civil rights lawyer yeah. here in Salt Lake. And um, they called Stuart, and I actually remember, this is true, about halfway through the search, you know, was going on. Um, Stuart, we looked out the window, and Stuart was walking up onto our porch. Hmm. And honestly, that felt so good. Wow. You know, if any lawyer out there is hearing about this, if you ever have a client who's being searched, and you hear about that, Go to the house. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just felt a sense of relief. All of us had a sense of relief that someone in the outside world, a, a lawyer on our side, knew what was happening. Yeah, um, it was going to go to bat for you. Yeah, and I mean, you know, he, and I, you know, I, I, of course, they didn't let Stewart in, mm-hmm. um, but we saw him outside the window. 
He was talking to the cops? Yeah, he's talking to the cops. And so at that moment, we're like, okay, someone knows what's happening. Because that was honestly like, you know, one of the first things that, that at least for me, was a little nerve-wracking. Because you have no idea what the fuck they're going to do. Yeah, exactly. To you or to anyone else. Yeah. I mean, you've got dogs and cats probably at the house. Yeah, yeah, they were both, yeah. They could kill your dogs. They could beat somebody up. You have no idea. You don't have any record of this Mm because they're taking all your phones away, so you can't record anything. Mm -hmm. And the record of 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 the FBI in particular, I mean... Jagger Hoover did some really awful things in the 1960s and 70s. And by 2010, and partly because of the outcry over what happened in the 1960s and 70s with like COINTELPRO, which yeah. is a program that basically destroyed the civil rights movement. Their number is, one yeah. goal was to tarnish and destroy the leadership of the civil rights movement. So no one would trust them and no one would follow them. Yeah. And I they, I wanna... they did a really good job with yeah. that. But it was the COINTELPRO protocols, which were only discovered because people raided an FBI office. Right, right. Like activists... Went into Illegally, this yeah. Town yeah. In the dead of night, yeah. Went into an FBI office because they suspected shit like this was happening. They, so they had the theory in their heads that this is already happening. They broke into an FBI office, the height of like the Vietnam War and all the cultural tumult of the 1960s and 70s and the civil rights movement. I think this happened like when late 1960s, COINTELPRO. Yep. Um, and they pulled out like all these files and found out this about this program called COINTELPRO. And right after that, I think it was Nixon who actually said, "We're not doing this anymore." We're canceling the COINTEL programs. We have regulation. Now, whether hmm. they complied with this rule, who knows? But at least in yeah. theory, there is a regulation in place saying, hey, we cannot go out there and just destroy social movements because we don't like them. Well, you have, what was it called? The Church Commission? I think that's right. That investigated you know, a lot of this the stuff. The COINTEL Pro stuff. But yeah. you know that was reversed after 9-11. Oh, every, so they, yeah. they every, everything after 9-11 yeah, got much worse. they abrogated the know? regulations that prevented infiltration and the sorts of tactics like smearing the campaigns and the leadership of activist movements in light yeah. of 9-11, because the government just decided, actually, we want to do this. And the American public didn't have the stomach to fight back yeah. at that time because we were so scared. Yeah, the rally we around so the flag scared. effect and all that. Yeah, yeah I mean, <clears throat> this is all true. Um, you know, and, and obviously, these experiences suck. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I do want to take a step back and say, I don't want to just have a, a discussion where we indulge in, like, a bunch of fear porn. Um, you know, like, I mean, obviously, none of this is fun. But, um, you know, we got through it. And, you know, I'm still being active as best I can. I think a lot of other people there were that day. And uh, I don't want people out there maybe listening to this to have a disproportionate sense of terror. You know, sure. you said terrified, you know, at one point yeah. in this discussion. I, I don't want people to feel that way. I, I don't want to sure. be, be – that, that almost means in a sense we're doing their job for them. Mm-hmm. We are acting as little vessels – of a fear message if yeah. we if we focus on this too much. That's one of the reasons that I don't like dwelling on this so much. Sure. Um, you know, as, as terrible as it was, um, no one was ever arrested yeah. after any of this. Um, we were eventually able to replace all of our stuff. Sure. And, um, you know, it's terrible that these civil liberties violations happen, and where we can, we should fight back and sue. I've sued cops like half a dozen times. Yeah. Um, pretty much always with success. So, you know, there are ways we can fight back and we shouldn't let these things scare us. Yeah, that's a good way to end that particular story. The last thing I want to say is important to that conversation of not feeling afraid is accountability for the system. And Mm -hmm. while a lot of folks, you know, have seen what's happened to black Americans in the context of Black Lives Matter and the killings of George Floyd, Eric Garner, one of the important lessons from all that is this can happen to any of us when we don't mm-hmm. check the authority. And, and, and so accountability and transparency in our legal system is beneficial for everybody. Absolutely. Including white yeah. kids in, in Salt Lake City. 
who are yeah. just trying to do animal rights activism because otherwise power will be abused. And power is abused more and more when there aren't systems of oversight and, sure. and, and check in place. You know, I mean, sure. everything we were just talking about with this search, I have to tell you, Wayne, I, I, I think this is honestly only my second most scary experience I've had huh. uh, with law enforcement. Number one was definitely Border Patrol. Huh. Um, that was like one of the only experiences where I actually literally thought I might get murdered. Wow. Um, and what was that experience? So I was like, for a period, I was on the terrorist watch list. Yeah. Luckily, I don't think I am anymore. Because of this raid and because of your... No, it predated the raid. Okay. Uh, I was on the terrorist watch list for like, from, I don't know, roughly 2006, 2012. Mm -hmm. Um, Every single time I was pulled over, it was an ordeal. Anyone who's on this list, you can read stories about it. There's a common playbook of what our lives are like when you were on this list. Fortunately, I'm not on this list anymore. I don't know how I got off. Sure. (laughs) I talked to lawyers about how to get off this list and they looked at the law and they were like... Yeah, we can't do shit about this, sure. which is crazy to me. Like, it was like just this huge loophole in our rights. Yeah. Uh, the terrorist watch list just needs to be banned. Yeah. I absolutely believe it. it's completely due process free. And um, I have so many experiences I could relay to you of every time I was stopped by law enforcement and they saw this alert on their mm-hmm. computer that said I was a terrorist. And it was always scary because lots of times these cops, it, they didn't know what it meant either. Yeah. And they, they don't know if that means they're supposed to effectuate a felony arrest on me. Yeah. Because it says I'm a terrorist. Yeah. And there was just so much tension in these moments when I was just pulled over for speeding sure. because of this. And um, everyone who's on that list has to live like that. It's it's horrific. But anyway, I was stopped at the border. Every single time I traveled internationally and I was on this list, it was like a nightmare. Yeah. Um, you know, because when here's the other thing, too, about this country. People don't know this. The border is like this constitution-free zone. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. they can detain you there. They can search your shit there. They don't need probable cause or reasonable suspicion or anything. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I was coming back from Canada with my brother and my girlfriend. So just driving back? Just driving back. We went up to Vancouver okay. just for fun, just a leisure trip. Mm-hmm. Coming back, and we were stopped, and uh, they pulled me into an interrogation room. And, um, like, I, they were really physical with me shoving me up against a wall jesus christ and they cuffed me to a bench and they were and this trying to no probable cause no nothing at all it was only because i was on this list so actually the, i list. was driving the car and they were like i need to see everyone's id in the car you know when you come into the country they ask for everyone's yeah, id yeah. i hand them everyone's id you know they, they look at my girlfriend's id you know they run it through the system give it back they look at my brothers they give it back then they run mine and the guy in the booth his eyes get all wide jesus. and huge and I immediately know what it's about. Like, yeah. I already know I'm on this list, and I'm like, here we fucking go. Yeah. You know, I already know what it's about. And immediately my car was surrounded by Border Patrol agents pointing automatic weapons at my head. Jesus Christ. Dead serious. And um, and I look over to my left, and there's a gun barrel right at my face. Yeah. And the agent goes, keep your eyes fucking forward. Jesus. Like, basically, I think I'm going to get my head my brains blown out oh. if I move at all. Wow. So they, they pull over and um, they bring me in this room and they try to interrogate me. And like, you wouldn't believe the questions they asked, dude. It's like yeah. seriously, like straight out of Joseph McCarthy shit. I'm not wow. even kidding. Like what clubs and organizations I belong to. They were asking me stuff like that. Do I know this person, that person? They were like crawling. This is really funny to say, but it's true. They were crawling my MySpace wow. <laughs> um, and like finding any friend I was with, asking about that. And I was not talking to them at all. I, was, yeah. I told you about the wall of silence. I was already cuffed to the bench at this point. So in my mind, I'm already under arrest. Like sure. if you're cuffed, that should mean you're under arrest. Yeah. 
and that's uh, the, literally the definition of an arrest. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's like a pretty important indicia yeah, of arrest, yeah. right? They're... Yeah. So I'm cuffed to the bench and everything, and and then they did this whole good cop bad cop. Wait, thing. can I explain to you what do you mean by they were physical with you? They shoved you up against the wall, so they just pulled you out of the so car and were just like they brought me you? into this room. Okay. If, okay. Voluntarily, you pull out, and what? And your family's left behind, just sitting in the car, wondering what the fuck is going on. Well, they pulled us all out of the car. Okay, they pulled, they pulled yeah. us all out of the car, but they took my brother and my girlfriend into basically, I guess, what you'd call the main lobby mm-hmm. of this building. But then they took me into like this back room, mm-hmm. and um, and then they, and then they brought me in there, and this guy comes in there. Ugh, I'm kind of getting chills talking about this, to be honest. This wow. is actually, it's funny. This is a much more traumatic memory than the surge. Wow. But um. <clears throat> So this 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 agent, these are all U.S. Border Patrol. He comes in there to question me, and at first his questions are like what you might call routine or whatever. Mm-hmm. What's your address? What's your occupation? Um, what's your date of birth? Stuff like that. And he's writing this down, and then like literally, he says something like, I, I, "I honestly couldn't believe this." He's like, "Do you belong to any political organizations?" Hmm. This is in the United States of America. This is like 2007, yeah. and I just said something like. Why do you need to know if I belong to political organizations when I'm just coming back to the United States? Mm-hmm. And he just said something like, are you refusing to cooperate with a national security investigation? Wow. And I was just like, whoa, I didn't know this was a national security investigation. And he's just like, I'm asking the questions here. What political organization? And he just was getting super aggressive with me mm. immediately. And it was, and we were just in this room completely by ourselves. Sure. And I was just said, at that point I said something like, well, now that I know this is some kind of investigation, I'm just going to tell you, I'm now remaining silent and I want an attorney. Mm-hmm. I said something like that. And then he flew off the handle and this guy actually had a, uh, this agent, this is a true story, he had a really bad speech impediment mm-hmm. and I had a hard time understanding him. But he was basically saying something like, stand up, stand up, get up. Like I was sitting on the bench. So I was like, what, what? Because I couldn't quite understand what he was saying. And he comes over there and he picks me up and he turns me around and he shoves me against the wall and then he p- grabs the back of my head and bends me over, and he actually, like, I'm not making this up, he, like, thrust his crotch, like, into my rear end. Jesus Christ. Yeah, like, it was, like, some sort of, like, total insane dominance thing. And I was, like, totally terrified in that moment. And um, pushed me down to the bench, cuffed my hand to the bench, and at that point, I, I was, like, stone silence. Like, I'm like, this is insane. And, like, I didn't, I was just, like, looking down at the ground, not even making eye contact on this guy. And I'm just, like, I'm just going to have to be completely silent and hope I can survive this. Sure. Like, that's literally what I was thinking. And they start bringing in all these different agents, one by one, come into this room. And they kind of try to do a good cop, bad cop thing. Yeah. You know, another cop comes in the room. You know, man, if you just answer the questions, you'll be out of here quicker. And then another cop comes in who's like a bad cop. And one of them says, you know, your girlfriend and your brother are already gone. It's just you here. Mm-hmm. It's just you here. And you can yeah. be here as long as you want to be here, man. That's up to you. And they're coming and going. And then the, the moment where I was like really fucking scared was, um, and I'm cuffed to the bench. This already has been happening. I've been shoved around. And this one cop comes in, U.S. Border Patrol agent. And he says to me, hey, man, look around you. There's no cameras in this room. What we say happened in this room is what happened in this room. Damn. Yeah, and I was just like, "This is like insane Orwellian shit." Like, yeah. I mean, this is like total police state. I don't even know what to do. Like, these guys are gonna lie yeah. about something I said or lie about something that I did. They could use it as like a pretense to f- fucking kill me or something. Like, I just did not know. Yeah, and um, and after like this for a couple hours, they finally like basically just gave up mm-hmm. and came over and uncuffed me. 
And this one cop goes like, okay, you can go back with your girlfriend and your brother. And I said something like, well, that guy over there said that my girlfriend and my brother left. Mm-hmm. And he goes, no, I didn't. And this mm. was the same guy that said that like two hours ago. Yeah. And I was just like, this is like an insanely dystopian institution yeah. here. And, and, and then I, as soon as we got home from this nightmare, I actually typed up a narrative. I, I called a lawyer. That was like the first thing I did. I called a lawyer. And I was like, listen to this shit that just happened to me. Mm-hmm. We need to like sue the board. Which when you do something. And the lawyer said, well, the first thing I want you to do is type up a narrative of everything that happened to you. And I think I still have that somewhere. Mm. Well, it's fresh in your mind. The same day it happened, you type up everything you remember, any names, anything you remember. Yeah. I typed it all up and I talked to the ACLU of Washington. Maybe there's a fucking record of this conversation somewhere. Talked to the ACLU of Washington, talked to my attorney. Every attorney I talked to was like, we can't do anything. Yeah. Because there's no record of this. Sure. It's your word against theirs. And you're at the border. They can yeah. detain you for like 72 hours or something. They actually were like light with me. Mm-hmm. They continue for 72 hours. They can search everything. They don't need any kind of warrant, nothing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's nothing we can do. And I literally, when that happened, I was like, I am never traveling internationally again. Wow. Like I'm going to be a prisoner in my own country because sure. I don't want to get like killed or framed or yeah. something coming back in the country. I mean, it was a pretty... It was a pretty surreal experience, um, like being alone in a room and a cop pointing out the fact that there are no cameras in the room. Like that's like I, I take that as basically a death threat. Yeah, for sure, um, it is. It's yeah. certainly a threat of violence of some. Yeah, sort. exactly. Whether it's a, it's death a threat, threat of violence. It's going to beat the shit out of you. Yeah, exactly. It's a threat of violence. Yep. It's fucked up. Yeah. Do you attribute this just to the nine eleven? Somewhat paranoia. Somewhat about terrorism. Because the yeah. weird thing is that the nine eleven paranoia was used against so many other groups. I mean, yeah, it would, it would it be was. awful and unacceptable even if this just happened to Muslim and Arab Americans. Mm-hmm. And I've got a lot of friends who had, actually not quite as bad as that, but similar experiences being profiled, including like Priya. Priya moved here, I think in within a week 9-11 happened. And Priya's not even Arab. She's sick, you know, but they, they wear, you know, of course, yeah. just like... A, the, there were a lot of incidents of hate crimes against Sikhs. Yeah, because yeah. people think they're, 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 they're Muslim and Arab and, yep. and they get attacked. And she had... You know, people throwing firecrackers at their feet. It's like a, a 13 age girl. Like right. people driving by cars and saying, get the fuck out and just throwing and she thinks it's a bomb. Yep. This you this know, this, so this like, yeah. This kind of fervor is not like, uncommon. It's it's, it's completely look at I mean it's happening to scary. it's happening to a smaller extent right now with Russia. Oh, absolutely. Um people I mean are, there's like Russian, Russian people like a yeah. like a piano concerto yeah. with a performer who's like twenty years old. It, it, yeah. he happens to be from Russia. It's too much. And it's uh, uh, too the much. Boston was it the Boston Philharmonic, one mm-hmm. of these huge symphonies, a major yeah. Symphony Institution disinvited him. Yeah, I agree. And this guy is like, and not even pro-Putin or whatever. Yeah, and, and the it's, scary thing I is, mean, that's, this is that's not basically even, a form of, of, it of bigotry. It, it's, it's not okay. Yeah, and, it's, it's and insane. Even if those people are in an ethnic group that is being, that is from a nation that's being led by some dictator, they're not responsible for it. And there yeah. has to be some sort of discrimination. I mean, discrimination, not in the negative sense. We right. should be able to distinguish between the actions of this one man doing these awful things. And yeah. residents who maybe have lived in the United States for 50 years and they just have a Russian sounding name or there's some aspect of Russian culture. I'm a huge fan of Russian literature. I love Dostoevsky. Right. He's my favorite novelist of all time. Yeah. I mean, I'm scumbag. Tchaikovsky, you know? It's, it's ridiculous. Yep. But it, it, it's definitely what happens. But the weird thing is, in the context of Ukraine, the weird thing is, and the scary thing is, it's not even a fight directly involving the United States yet. Mm-hmm. Right? But in 9-11, it was. True. There are people who were killed. But I mean, that that, so the, that that kind of Cold War proxy battle stuff, that has a yeah, lot of historical precedence, too. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's scary shit. 
Yeah. It's scary shit. It, that, 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 there's definitely something in us that can get swept up in some kind of fervor. Yeah. You know, and, and there's reports of that even back in like World War One. Mm-hmm. There was a ton of anti-German bigotry. People were actually kicking uh, wiener dogs in the street. Wow. Like, did you know that? That's like dachshunds. It's crazy. There were Just reports. They German were dogs. German dogs. And people were kicking them in the streets. Yeah. There were all these reports of this. And I, the, the other thing I want to say is I think it's in all of us. If Absolutely. You think you're exempt from it. You're wrong. That's um, yeah. All of us have this deep-seated loyalty and protective instinct, which in many ways is a good thing. You know, you want to protect your people, but it can manifest as aggression and hatred too. Mm-hmm. And we have to be so careful about that. Mm-hmm. So careful about that. Because that demon is in all of us. Yeah. You know, I see I this think... even in the way animal rights activists interact with people in animal agriculture. The sure. hatred and the visceral kind of animosity it's created, which yeah. I mean, usually it doesn't rise the level of, of anything that's too harmful, but at a minimum, it's just strategically counterproductive because it clouds your judgment. Yep. And it clouds your ability to predict how people actually respond. Yeah. Because you just see these other individuals as monsters instead of as the same nuanced, complicated human being subject to many different social influences that we are. Yep. But I mean, I, I think that's one of the most important, like, fundamental moral lessons that people should learn is that we are all... The world is not neatly divided into saints and sinners. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you think that, that is such a simplistic, you know, moral outlook. Like, we all have within us, you know, compulsions that can be brought out under the right social circumstances that are, that allow us to do evil things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we have to be on guard for that at all times. And we have to be on, just like you're saying, too, like with the, 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 the feeling in the movement of, you know, not even wanting to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's a very counterproductive thing. Yeah. Um, not even wanting to talk to people involved in animal research or in agriculture and all that. Um, you know, I, I, and I, I think that that's, you know, one other manifestation of this like crazy tribal time we're in, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I see it all the time where, you know, one of my former colleagues at PETA, she goes on, uh, Tucker Carlson from time to time Hmm. and whatever you think of Tucker Carlson. I mean, this guy has a show that millions of people are seeing. Sure. Um, I honestly think we have an obligation for the animals. If we get an invitation to get their message mm-hmm. out there to that many people, we should do that. Um, it, you know, but people will will go after and attack sometimes this person for just going on this show. And sure. you know, I, I think that that's just such a counterproductive thing. And you know, I, I think if you know if we have an animal rights conference, um, if I was running an animal rights conference. I would actually invite animal experimenters to come speak at it mm-hmm. um, or people in the agriculture industry to come speak at it. Let's listen to them. Let's debate them. Mm-hmm. Um, let's have a conversation with them. We may even, you know, as funny as this sounds, we may even get some like actionable intelligence mm-hmm. um, from hearing them and and hear, hearing their perspective and talking to them. And, and I have enough confidence in our position that we can ha- hear the opposition talk and it won't. Our resolve won't be shaken. Yeah. Um, you know. And I think that that, that there, there's almost a. It's coming from almost a point of weakness mm-hmm. to not even want to hear the opposition. I think that's a mistake. Yeah. No, I think there's two false assumptions that are affecting particularly activism. I mean, to a certain extent, our entire culture has been affected by some of these dynamics. But I think activism, in particular, has been very seriously affected, and it's particularly bad for activism to make these two false assumptions. One is. The assumption of the binary, that everything's black and white, and you talked about that, that there's, you know, very simple good guys and bad guys. And the simple and the easy morality stories we tell just usually aren't good ones. Mm-hmm. They're stories we tell ourselves 
but everything's very complex. And you were saying this about movements earlier and, and trying to understand from a sociological or political science or economics perspective, the laws of social movements is incredibly hard because human beings are complicated and societies are complicated and the planet is a complicated place. So the idea that we can come up with simple answers, especially simple morality plays just isn't correct. But, but the second is, and, and this might be even more dangerous assumption, especially for movements that are trying to create change, is that people on the other side are dangerous just by view of their view. Like being exposed to that view is dangerous. It makes me unsafe to hear yeah. someone say, for example, I think it's fine to kill animals. You know, if you feel that way, you cannot be a good activist. You right. can't create change because being an activist requires you to go toward those situations where someone is saying something you disagree with. Yeah. And whatever the right tactic is, maybe it is to call a person out. Maybe it is to have a conversation. Maybe it is to find their better angels. I mean, whatever the tactic is, you can't do any of those things when you're paralyzed by this cultural norm. And it is becoming a cultural norm that anyone who disagrees with you, especially about a moral issue, is actually dangerous. Right. Right. And that's that's and a scary place for an activist movement to be. It's especially a scary place for an activist movement to be when we're such a tiny minority. For sure. Um, you know, I mean, I, I see I see a lot of studies from time to time that come out and they're often published in like Veg News or in a lot of these like, you know, super animal rights sources mm -hmm. that try to estimate the number of vegans that are in the country. And I think they're almost always wildly overestimating. Yeah. I don't know if you are, but like I, I saw one just recently that said 6% of the country is vegan. Yeah. No way. It's not even 0. 0.6. <laughs> it's not, it's yeah. not 0. 0.6. Like, be 0. 0.6. I don't I think, think so. And you know, that's the Berkeley and you talking. Yeah. You're in such a bubble probably. Dude, have you been to McDonald's lately? Yeah, there's a lot of vegans there. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a vegan burger there. Yeah, and I, that's why people are there for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm you sure know, <laughs> what do you think the percentages of people there for that? I, I haven't actually even had it yet. <laughs> <laughs> so it I, is I a think Beyond Burger though, so you can eat it, buddy. <laughs> okay, but I guess the point I'm just trying to get at is like if 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 we think we can just you know build some sort of future where we're just going to shut out all of the people that think differently than us or even yeah. think, you know, speciesistly, ways that I don't think people should think or behave. I, mm -hmm. I think we should have a better view of animals. Don't get me wrong. But the reality is we're not even sort of there yet. And it, it, we, we can't just disconnect from the rest of the world. Yeah. That's so never going to lead to change. I, I had a conversation with a then graduate student. Now he's a sociologist, I think at Princeton, named Gabriel Spark, I think is his name. He was a student under Rob Willer. Um, do you know Rob Willer? No. Nope. He has this very famous TED Talk. He's a sociologist at Stanford. I'm actually going to have him on the podcast sometime in the next few weeks. Brilliant guy who has a TED Talk that went viral called How to Have Better Political Conversations. And mm. his research is basically... I almost wonder if I watched that, actually. Yeah, it, it sounds like the sort of thing you might have watched. But the idea behind it is, if you want to have a good, persuasive political conversation, you have to speak the values of the person you're talking to. Absolutely. Right? You have to find yeah. out what their values are and help them understand why the change you're asking for is a change that's consistent with their value system. But Gabriel Spark has done some really, really interesting research on when kind of injunctive approaches, in other words, punishment, exclusion, ostracism may work. And when um, perspective seeking and just like the more of the sharing of perspective and the Rob Willer style approach, which is explaining to the person why you actually already agree with me because your value system. Yeah. Like so conservatives, when you're talking to a conservative about the environment, talk about cleanliness and purity because conservatives care there a lot about go. purity. And you can say like, do you really, I mean, you've got such a neat home. Do you want our planet to be neat? 
Well, yeah. <laughs> you should support the Clean Air Act. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Well, if you say, like, environmental justice, you know, we believe in rights for Earth, you know, they're like, ah, this yeah. is weird and arcane, and I'm kind of okay with just capitalism and living the life I would like to live. Yeah. So, but what Gabriel has pointed out is that um, injunctive norms, like seeking to ostracize someone or punish Shame, them, that kind of thing, them, yeah. Tends to work when a movement has become majoritarian or even super majoritarian. That just makes sense, right? Yeah. It so that, totally that makes can sense. Be yeah. Effective technique. The problem is the echo chambers that social media creates that allow us to basically filter out everyone who disagrees with us and only speak and hear from the people we want to hear from. Yeah. Right? And 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 the politicization of the media where yeah. you can just listen to the Fox News or the Breitbart or the MSNBC on the other side. Yes. Convince you you're in the Gabriel Spark world where you can use injective norms to ostracize everyone. Because uh-huh. even if you're only 20% of the population, everyone you're seeing is down for veganism or Black Lives Matter. This is so true. Is. I think and this so is you're very true. you're confused about the state of the world you're in. You think you're <laughs> yeah. in the Gabriel Spark world. Yeah. You're actually in the Rob Willer world where you've got a lot of people you need to persuade. And yes. Yes. So, Excluding well, everyone who's not part of your team yep. is leaving you nowhere. <laughs> the, you exclude basically everyone in the world. Yeah, I I think that's actually a, a, so astute, honestly. And I think we see evidence of those kinds of false bubbles we're in all over the place. Just look at the fact now that like elections in this country are the, the losing side of elections consistently can never believe it. Yeah. Um, I just can't believe it. I mean, this happened in 2016, where it when, happened in 2020 too. It also happened in 2020. But so, but this is my point, though. You had, to, you had this happened. Yeah. This happening on both sides. Because when I saw 2016 election, I don't know about you, where yeah. you were at, but I always thought I was, I was looking at the polls and everything, and I was like, "Holy shit, this Trump guy might really win this." Uh-huh. And he was doing really well in all the primaries, way better than anyone thought he would. And the polls were actually super close. They really were. And they were converging near the end. And they were converging towards the end. And I I, I had so much anxiety on election night on 2016. And I had friends of mine who were all having these house parties. Yeah, they were already celebrating. They were already celebrating. And I was just like, what are y'all looking at? Because I don't necessarily (laughs) know this is going to go well. And, and, And then when Trump won, I mean, just there were... You know, we may have an argument about this. You know, the Democrats may not have stormed the Capitol yeah. level of disbelief, but, oh, but there was still there were so many people who were scared and weeping, scared and weeping, and and as part of me even understands the scared and weeping. But what I don't understand is people Shocked. who just said, "I never in a million years thought this would happen." How can you not think this could happen? I mean, the yeah. polls were always close, and I think anyone who gets the nomination of one of the two major parties can absolutely be president. Yeah. And if, if, you, if you think that's impossible, like, you just are not following politics. Like, our elections are pretty much always close now, yeah. at least relatively. And, so, and then the same thing happened in 2020, right? It's like, I think the reason that so many people are, are clinging to whatever conspiracy theories about fucking bamboo fibers on ballots or whatever whatever the conspiracy theory du is jour conspiracy is conspiracy theory about bamboo fibers yeah in Arizona <laughs> you didn't hear about that that was no. the, the yeah there was there's this theory that was out there in a lot of the conservative media that they found bamboo fibers on ballots and that proves that they were fake ballots shipped from, from China. China oh it's the Chinese <laughs> it's always the fucking Chinese well it's no sometimes it's the Mexicans ah. too so I mean there's a it's whatever conspiracy theory whatever theory you want but the reason people are seeking those out is because they're coming from a place of there's no fucking way biden can actually win yeah and and the same thing's gonna happen and i this might happen again in 2024 i think there's a very good chance trump is gonna come back and win again yeah and and we're gonna see the same thing 
you know, it, it may manifest itself a little differently, you know, in the different camps, but there's still going to be this 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 baseline disbelief. And yeah. I think the reason is just like you're saying, everyone I know is got yeah. all their Biden signs out and loves Biden and, and is seeing everything I'm seeing about all this, mm-hmm. you know, negative stuff about Trump. How can anyone possibly vote for this monster? Yeah. And I think that is a huge problem. Yeah. You know, it's exactly like you said, we're, we're also willing to use shame because we falsely think we're in a bigger yeah. group than we are. 90% of us are all in agreement. So yeah. let's just ostracize this 10% that is the deplorables. You know? Exactly. And in yep. the, the immortal words of Hillary Clinton, the deplorables can sure. be excluded and we'll be fine. Pro- probably, probably, the probably the biggest gaffe of that campaign. Yeah. Right? And if the deplorables are 60% of the population, that's a little bit more difficult <laughs> yeah. than if they're 10% or exactly. 5% and, and not only are they, you know, more than numerous than you think, now you've galvanized them because you've you've denigrated them and now you've created this spirit among them where they want to say well fuck you yeah like you know we'll show you is deplorable and like that's such a bad place for our politics to be in like every election is like this hate fuck election where it's just like you know people are voting for a candidate more because they want to piss off other people than they even think their candidate is good yeah there was a study by (laughs) done i think by the kennedy school of government at, at harvard where they're looking, especially at people under the age of 30 who use social media extensively to form their political identities. And I don't remember all the details and statistics. I have to pull it out because I read it quite a while ago. But I do remember the headline, the, the, the main conclusion of the study is young people on social media are defining themselves by who they hate. Yeah, this is this is and this is what negative polarization is. Ezra Klein has written about this as well. I'm not actually defined by any sort of positive set of values that bring me together with another set of people. And in many ways, if we did define ourselves by the positive values that we're trying to achieve, maybe we can find common ground with other folks, you know, like conservatives who maybe they don't understand or believe in climate science and environmental justice, but they don't want a dirty planet. Mm-hmm. And so we can agree that let's do something about oil and gas. Sure. We don't want a dirty plant. But if you're defining yourself just by the fact that I hate people on the other side, it's kind of a negative sum game or at best yep. a zero sum game. There's no room for collaboration. It's, and, it, and it's a politics of exclusion. It is. It's, it's like that, that's just going to lead to like fewer and fewer people you can organize with. Yeah. Work towards a common purpose. I mean, I remember a couple years ago, um, we, you know, a number of activists here in Salt Lake actually worked with people who live down in Millard County, Utah, which is mm-hmm. this rural county, they actually got a ballot initiative to stop any new pig factory farms. Mm-hmm. This was totally targeted at Smithfield, yeah. 100%. Um, which which it, is the biggest pig farm in the company, huge corporate, multinational corporation. Huge owned corporation. Owned by a Chinese conglomerate. Owned by, that was a big factor for these people <laughs> who wanted to keep Smithfield out. They, <laughs> they viewed it as encroachment by the Chinese government or whatever. But they also were just against the environmental Factory pollution farming, and sure. the stench and all of that. And, um, you know, we, we would go down and meet these people. And to this day, I still am in contact with a lot of those people yeah. down there. And I mean, on, on, on nine, people. 90% of political issues, I'm going to disagree with them on. And I remember one of the first times we had a meeting with them, we were first getting to know them and learn about this work they're doing against Smithfield. We actually had like an explicit conversation where we're like, you know, I'm sure we're not going to see eye to eye on everything, but you don't like Smithfield. I don't like Smithfield. Let's yeah. put that shit aside. And I remember one time, you know, we were out there gathering petition signatures to get this on the ballot, this initiative. And after we were done gathering petition signatures, we all went to Carl's Jr. Mm-hmm. in Millard County, Utah. This is super rural. <laughs> and even they all got no, the got Beyond, Beyond Burger, Burger. <laughs> you know? And so this was this moment of like, and it was, I mean, of course that was only because they were with us. They sure. would never do that if they weren't with us. But just that 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 very initial first step of mutual respect happened there. Yeah. Um, you know, one of these people was actually literally a rancher. 
Huh. We were wow. literally collecting signatures with someone with the who rancher had, to stop factory farming. to stop factory farming, and so like that kind of collaboration. Like if if you can actually harness that, yeah. I really mean it. I do think that's what Smithfield would be really scared about. They wouldn't be scared about, you know, yeah, the, the next vegans or yeah, you know, the radical vegans getting something to go viral on Twitter. I don't necessarily know that's what they'd care about, but yeah. partner with the ranchers in Millard County to get something on the ballot. Yeah, that's now kind of really starting to threaten well, their interests. I agree with it completely. And yeah, I, I will say. I mean that that organizing you did tremendous work with that campaign and we and, came and up to sorry you came we up came short. up 230 votes short one of my great regrets is that i was not able to support more and that folks internationally and nationally were not able to support more because i think a lot of people on the right and the left if they had actually understood the issues and how important that fight was probably would have thought i need to spend some time on this and i will say i met steve myself yeah because you know, we went down there a couple times steve maxwell was like the leader of the local community super, as far as i can tell super right-wing guy pro-gun you know Pro American. To me, he doesn't actually fit neatly right or left, but yeah. but definitely See, unorthodox. Unorthodox. I mean, yeah. more right than left. I mean, he would not be welcome in any leftist circles. <laughs> sure, Berkeley for sure. That's probably because true. Of his political background <laughs> and his beliefs. I mean, so one of the things he t- told me. I remember. Do you remember what he showed me? The Smithfield ad. What he said. The thing that clearly is bad about this. That I. I was like trying to figure it out because I'm like, it's just two kids. What's wrong? I mean, yeah, I know exactly what you're market. talking about. Actually, so, so he shows me this ad, and. I can tell the look in his face. He's like shaking his head and so like, angry, so horrible, unacceptable advertisement. Can you believe what Smithfield did to our people subjecting to them to this? I thought it was like, what is there? Is there sexual assault? Is there profanity? I mean, I was trying to figure out what it was and it was just that two kids were lying on a flag. Like yeah. a blanket, the blanket they were the, lying It was like on. a picnic. It was like a flag yeah. blanket. Uh-huh. And he said, this is what a foreign company does. They don't understand how to respect the American flag and the American people. And I was like, oh, and he also yeah. was like, he was convinced too. And if Steve ever is listening to this, you know I love you, Steve. Yes, I'm not he's trying a great to. Guy. He really just, is. I'm just I'm pointing this out effective. not to say that yeah. he's necessarily even wrong. Yeah. Just to point out how different the value systems. Totally. Are. Like this wouldn't like even a register from Berkeley. It just didn't occur to didn't me. Didn't even I, register. I, I probably yeah. could have spent the next hundred years of my life trying to figure out what it was if <laughs> yeah. he hadn't pointed that out because it just it just never would have occurred to me that that yep. was an affront. Yeah. But from his perspective, I mean, he even it thought that was like effective. intentional. Oh yeah. He was like, they're putting an idea in our minds that we should trample our country Uh you know and i was like i didn't even occur to me you know (laughs) yeah but um yeah we came honestly i think if coronavirus hadn't happened in 2020 i think we would have won that i think that's man organizing in rural communities is really tough i really learned that through this i mean just people don't have as many gathering spaces people Mm. are really spread out when we were gathering signatures to get that on the ballot we'd have to like get in our car and drive like a fifth a mile and then go walk up and knock on a door to get a signature and there'd often be like a sign on the door that's like this house protected by smith and wesson we don't call 911 wow and i'm like well this is fun knocking on this door (laughs) this person's probably never had anyone knock on their door in 10 years or something you know and um and so that was that was a challenge i mean and 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 you know, I, I was disappointed in a lot of the national animal rights groups, how little they cared or supported. And I think that honestly, like making change in rural parts of the country is one of the largest blind spots mm-hmm. uh, the animal rights movement has right now. We're just yeah. totally, all of the major animal rights organizations are based in Los Angeles or Washington, D.C. They've totally written off that whole part of the country mm-hmm. and um and, and and as a result like it, you know th- things just keep backsliding there yeah. um th- there's not even attempts at public awareness anymore in those areas um and i, I think that's definitely one of the areas our movement needs to improve on a lot more 
I don't even think it's necessarily rural versus urban. I think it's just local versus national, international. And I think this yep. is a problem of our broader media ecosystem. And Matt Taibbi has written about this, that everybody in the media writes about one thing now. Mm-hmm. That's it. You know, And this is one of the values of digital media. You can write about one thing. Everyone does hear about one thing. And You mean yeah, this over, like over-specialization, basically, is what you're saying? Not even over-specialization. It's like over-generalization. It's like mm. no one's specializing because... There's one issue. Everyone's connected to this international ecosystem of media, right? It used to be the case that... Oh, you mean you know, everyone is writing about this one same issue. thing? Yeah. So oh, like, okay. I see you, what you're saying you now. I misunderstood you. one moral you. panic to the next. Yeah, definitely. all the issues that are real, substantive issues that people should be addressing in their local communities, or even in the international community, just because they don't happen to be the one issue that's going viral on Twitter right now that every mm-hmm. journalist is elbowing the other journalists out of the way. And I've seen this myself when working with journalists. It's like the number of times I've heard a journalist say... This is a really good story, but it's not X. And yeah. X changes from coronavirus to Black Lives Matter to Ukraine, whatever it is, the issue of the day. But there's this, and it's it's partly because we're social animals and we just kind of want to write about what other people are writing about. But when there's a real crisis in the world, whether it's the climate crisis, pandemics being driven by factory farms, or just the animal cruelty that's unfolding all over the world, there are more things than one that need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And it's just hard for people to do that because their attention is being sucked into that one little black hole that is taking you know all the air and oxygen out of the room for anything else. Yeah. And people but, are so – a lot of the large organizations and a lot of the major media institutions are so obsessed with those bottom line numbers, those yeah. metrics of what's getting the most engagement. Yep. That's driving so much of this and that's not necessarily – What's making the most impact? I mean, so this Millard County thing we were just talking about, they have a local paper actually down there mm. called the Chronicle, Millard County Chronicle. I think that's what it's called, something like that. Mm. And, um, you know, it, it's true that probably very few people are reading that paper. But, I mean, they do have a website and they have a print publication that distributes to, like, every home in Millard County. And, um, you know, we should be running stuff in there. I mean, Smithfield is trying to expand in there. And I'll tell you this, the Farm Bureau gets that. Mm -hmm. The Utah Farm Bureau, when we were working on this proposition campaign, our Prop 6 campaign, they had full-page ads Mm -hmm. in that paper every damn week leading Mm -hmm. up to Election Day. So they understand that even though that may not be what's getting the most engagement, those particular people at that time have a unique amount of political power that's going to affect this industry. For sure. Um, And I don't necessarily think the the people who run the marketing department at Mercy for Animals Mm -hmm. or Animal Outlook or whoever it is, I'm not singling out any one group, um, understand that value. It's, It's just more like, why would we pay attention to this tiny community out there? And it's like, well... They often have a lot more power than you're necessarily realizing, even if they're not affecting your metrics. Look at also like what the conservative media is doing with like school board activism right mm-hmm. now. Another great example of yeah. this, I think. They're getting out there in these small communities all over the country, getting angry parents out there. I mean, mm-hmm. some of their concerns may be off base. I'm not saying I agree with their concerns, yeah. but their level of political organization is just different. Yeah. Than, than putting together a gala in Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just a totally different outlook. And I, I think the animal rights movement needs a little bit more of, of that kind of, you know, talking to the, the, the ordinary people, mm-hmm. frankly, you know, yep. getting back to that. We're so disconnected from that now. Yeah. I think the two best examples is, of this on the right are the pro-life movement and gun rights movement. Mm-hmm. Both of them do immensely powerful local organizing. 
with the NRA, you know, there are more gun clubs in this country than there are McDonald's, and that's the foundation of all their power. They form these little associations. A lot of the folks who come and shoot don't have a particular view on gun control. They might even be shooting for the first time, just a friend of someone who's a member of the NRA, and thinking, oh, this is cool. Like, this is a fun experience. It was kind of exciting. It got my adrenaline up. These guys gave me beers. They're cool people, especially in a time where Americans are feeling incredibly lonely and have so few mm-hmm. civic connections. Getting an opportunity to go hang out with some folks and have a beer and shoot some guns, do something exciting is incredibly powerful. The pro-life movement does the same thing. You know, yeah. They invite people. And Ziad Munson, a sociologist, I think at Brandeis, did the best study on this. He found that one out of two people who became like frontline pro-life anti-abortion activists, when they had first contact, meaning a first in-person event where mm-hmm. they came to some sort of organizational function involving pro-life activism, they had no particular view, um, were either neutral or against. I think, wasn't that just in the New York Times just recently? Yeah, it's been a, a couple times. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of discussion of this. And and this is another example of how if you have this misperception about whether you're in the Gabriel Sparks or the Rob Willer world, if you think that this one person who doesn't agree with you on gun rights or an abortion or whatever it is, just should be ostracized and hated. And because you think we're at 90% when we're actually at 5% or 10% or even 40%, you're going to exclude that person. And instead of seeing them as a potential ally, we need to try and include them in the movement. And you're going and to exclude them. The Not just with animal rights. Yeah. With leftist movements more generally. It is. Absolutely. Yeah, a huge problem. And when those people are excluded, they're not excluded to go off into the wilderness by themselves. They often are pushed into the arms of some other exactly. organizing structure. Yeah. And that comes back opposition. to haunt us. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And, and so it's, it's very short-sighted, you know? Um, yeah. I think I think one of the challenges we have, though, that like the pro-life um, – activists don't necessarily have is there's such a uh i do think there's a pretty tight connection between a lot of pro-life activism and religion mm-hmm. and so they're already able to tap into this like pre-existing identity that gives yeah. this group of people cohesion for sure you know and the the, the animal rights movement is very secular yep. i mean yeah. it's it's so there's not that same you know sure, existing structure yeah. that we can just yep. kind of infuse this new idea through yeah that's not um, true with the NRA, though. Yeah, I, I mean, there's anything like the church for the NRA. I mean, the NRA, though, not 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 one monolith in that sure. same way, but I think the NRA still does tap into these other cultural edifices, like it mm-hmm. taps into hunters, yeah. or it taps into a lot of people who used to be in the armed forces. Sure, a lot of those people, you know, shot guns and and had had fun with guns when they were in the military, yeah. and they you know keep that up even when they're a civilian back home. Yeah, um, and and so the NRA is still kind of able to tap into. Th- there are still you even pointed out yourself. There's gun clubs. Mm-hmm. You know, there there still are these. I, you know, I don't know how many. I guess there are vegan clubs, but I don't yeah. think it's exactly yeah, the so. same. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's kind of one of the more challenges we have. We're we're more fragmented. Yeah. All right, but there's a so much more we could talk about, and Jeremy done some of the most tremendous work, including work to support us. So, for example, I don't think we are able to accomplish the Ridgeland rescue and investigation without your support and not to implicate you in the charges. <laughs> you're only involved ex post facto after all the things you're being charged for. Uh, Jeremy has as much knowledge about experimentation on animals as anyone I know. So I, I want to at least ask you two really important questions. One is, you know, how did you get involved in animal experimentation and how did you become interested in this? Cause I think even back when you were getting raided and when you got started as an activist, I guess anti first stuff was part of your activism. But when I think of Jeremy Beckham, I think of someone who's, who's fighting the use of animals in science. So what was your original motivation for, for getting involved in that work? So 
honestly, for me, and maybe I'm 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 a little different than a lot of other activists in this way. Um, I have I I don't really separate all of the different animal exploiting industries huh. um, in my own head very much. Like I I I I honestly feel just as passionate about the circus as I do factory farming as I do animal experimentation. I think it is really all cut from the same cloth of humans abusing our power over other animals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, speciesism, I think, is a very real thing we need to grapple with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, downplaying the suffering of others because they look differently than us, they're smaller than us, they're in a different species than us. I think it's all basically the same thing. Um, so, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I have done a lot of work in animal experimentation over the last 20 years. Is you saw from the start, even when you were Pretty a much. Um, you know, How did I, you become an animal rights activist again as a teenager? Um, so, I, I, the main thing for me was actually reading Animal Liberation yeah, by Peter Singer. Um, you know, before that, I actually, the, this is a true story. The very first exposure I had to animal rights was PETA had a uh, campaign against McDonald's in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And... The high, the junior high that I went to, Eisenhower Junior High, had a flag on its flagpole that was the McDonald's flag. And <laughs> why did it have a McDonald's? Because they were flag a sponsor of our school. Of your junior high. They oh were the sponsor. This is this is the so idiocracy sad. we live in now, right? Yeah. It's awful. <laughs> very, it is very sad. And so some activists, and we were told it was so PETA. There's literally like a flag on a flagpole, like the American flag, except it's McDonald's. It, with the American flag, and right underneath it was McDonald's. <laughs> I'm actually dead serious. Oh my God, that's so ridiculous. It is ridiculous. This is this is the idiocracy we live in now. But um, yeah, so I was told, and, and some activists, and I was told at the time it was PETA, but who knows if it really was. You know how that happens. Sure, yeah. Everyone you know, thinks everything's PETA. Everyone thinks everything's PETA. Everything some, we do is PETA. And maybe it really was PETA. Maybe I don't know. PETA. I was was in junior high maybe i'm peter cover and i've been doing <laughs> something else some activists at the junior high I went to climbed the flagpole with a machete wow. and cut the mcdonald's flag down during Damn. during a school day and when this Wait, happened so these are students who did this? no 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 these oh, were no, these are okay. they said it was peter they said it was peter in the school okay. but what happened from a perspective of a student inside the school uh-huh. um all of a sudden they came on the intercom and they said teachers lock your students down there's a weapon on campus <laughs> Okay, <laughs> and everyone was kind of Someone freaked out. The flag down. Everyone was freaked out. How did they know and... that there was it was cut down rather than just taken? Down, well, I think they like... saw it or whatever. I think well, it was during it. the middle of school day. Oh, wow. it was during so the middle of a school day. Observed it. Okay. it. I think someone got arrested and everything. Damn. And it was the ch- as you can imagine, it was the chatter of the school. Like sure. these weird people, these PETA people, <laughs> climbed our flagpole with a machete and cut the McDonald's flag down. And like literally everyone in the school. Everyone was like, these people are fucking nuts. Huh. These are crazy. And, and I was like, what's PETA? And like, I, 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 the first time I'd ever heard of them, and someone just said to me something like, oh, they're these crazy people who think we shouldn't eat meat. Wow. And they're like these weird animal people. And I was like, wow, what a bunch of weirdos. Like, I just, just thought it was so crazy. And and then like a couple is this in Salt Lake City, this middle school, uh, Taylorsville, which is oh, a suburb. Okay. That's a suburb, suburb of Salt Lake. Salt Lake. Yep. Okay. So that was like my very first exposure to PETA. That was the very first time I even knew anyone gave a shit about meat. You, should, you know what I mean? Like no one who that person was in the story of it. I'm kind of fascinated I, by this. I want to go through the record. I think I did at one time, but I don't remember now. I was. I'm yeah. sure it wasn't Peter because that doesn't sound like the sort of thing Peter would do. Yeah, I I just don't remember now yeah. to be honest. I think I looked it up at one time, but huh. um. So that was my very first exposure. And then a couple years later, I saw like a program where they were talking about hunting and, you know, someone was against hunting. And I was like, there was that PETA group. And, you know, and so I looked up PETA because I knew these kooky people were called PETA and they had a, 
And I went to the PETA website and I started reading, and this was like right around the year 2000. I started like ravenously reading like everything on their website. They had this frequently asked questions section. I went through like every damn question. I was really interested. There were all these ideas I hadn't even thought about, about animals, things I'd never even thought about. You know, one thing I will say about PETA for sure is they have a reputation for being wild and they do some wild things. They've always been a great resource of information over the years. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. You, You talked about your dream of creating a Wikipedia for animal rights. And to the extent we have one, it's probably the PETA website historically. It's yeah, been the yeah. Place where you find all the information. Well, and I'll tell you this too. Like, I mean, it, like you said, PETA has a reputation for doing the wacky stunts and all that, and that's yeah. all deserved. And I get that. But having worked for PETA myself for a long time, they are insanely meticulous fact checkers. Sure. Um, they really are. Like, pretty much every statement you see on their website, their legal team and their uh-huh. publications team has got a document on file somewhere that backs sure. that up. Yeah. Um, it, the information on that website is very accurate. It really yeah. is. Um, you know, people may think that they're a weirdo group or whatever, but that's just the facts. Yeah. But anyway, so I, somewhere on the website, though, there was a, I, it said something about Animal Liberation by Peter Singer. Huh. And I got that book, and I read that book, and it just pretty much immediately changed my life. Wow. And that's like the, the the best book I think in the movement well, to this you day. Are you a dog and cat person? I mean, why were you pretty? Oh uh, yeah, we had animals? dogs, and you know, we definitely loved our dogs. And I think everyone who has sure. dogs loves their dogs. I, I hope. I guess not everybody, but yeah. we did. And um, were you already yeah. an activist? Not at all. Not at all. No, not at all. This was my first issue. I, I wow. actually started dabbling in other issues after animal rights. Nice. I went. Yeah. To, I did anti Iraq war protests in two thousand two. Yeah. But I was already Righteous. vegan by that point. Yeah. Um. Went up to the. I went up to Seattle to protest on the anniversary of the anti WTO riot. Yes. Wow. I wasn't there for the main event, unfortunately, yeah. but I went up there to protest on anniversaries and stuff. So I got into other causes, but animal rights was the first one. Yeah. And um. Why, why did you decide to read the book Animal Liberation? Well, I honestly, I just the the website just started to make me think. Yeah, I I mean, I, it sounds really simple. I, yeah. I I I wish I had a better story, but I was just like I had never thought about these issues, and I read the book and I just found it so convincing. Yeah. Um, I didn't know a single other vegan or vegetarian at the time yeah, in yeah. person. Yeah, I mean, you're in what Taylorsville. Taylorsville, Utah, Utah. <laughs> and uh, I just started high school. I just uh. started high school, and I actually tried to start an animal rights club. Mm-hmm. And I did start an animal rights club, and um, like the other person I started the club with wasn't even vegan, yeah. but they like liked animals, and they were like, "Sure, I'll start a club with you, Jeremy. Whatever." Huh. <laughs> and um, so we like started a club, and I I, I started I got why uh, vegans from mm-hmm. vegan outreach. I passed yeah. out why vegans at my school, cool. and uh, there was a counter club that started against mine called the Carnitarians. Wow. And they actually grabbed a bunch of my Y vegans and burned them and put the ashes in a jar and put the jar on my locker. Wow. As like a, just like this fuck you. So, I mean, you know, it wasn't always received well. That's messed up. I think I still have that jar somewhere of the ashes as a little symbol of, nope, not at all. And they had, I'll tell you the most fucked up thing they did. This is a true story. All the clubs in the high school uh, for Christmas would decorate a tree, a Christmas tree, and those tree and in th- this club they founded, the Carnitarian Club, was literally like a club dedicated to trolling us. Huh. That was the only reason it existed, was to troll the animal rights was club. Was the person who started it is someone who hated you? Did you yes. Do you know these people individually? I actually do. Did they I, hate you just because the animal rights activists? Pretty or? much. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it, people were going to rodeos and sure. stuff. Like, this was not a popular message at okay. all in, you know, 2001 or whatever. Mm-hmm. So they started this club, this Carnitarian Club. And I remember the most fucked up thing they did. I just couldn't believe they did this. We all decorated trees. And these trees actually went to charity. They went to, like, low-income people who couldn't afford a Christmas tree for their family mm-hmm. to, like, put presents under and everything. And um, every club decorated their tree. 
And this Carnitarian Club actually hung like raw bacon. Wow. And and like steaks and burgers on their Christmas tree. And this tree actually went to like oh, some family. family. Wow. Gross. As like some troll to me. Yeah. Some poor family. I mean, to me, yeah. that's like also insulting them. Of course. They're gonna think that like those that tree was decorated, like yeah, yeah. flaunting food or I don't even know. Yeah. And I couldn't believe that that's the just school weird. I, mean, I couldn't believe the school let them do that. The school must have taken that stuff off, no? I don't know that Raw they did. Meat. I mean that's I mean, like a it was, threat. So it, the short the week before Christmas, all of these trees were on display in like the main front area of the high school. I mean they were still there. They were still there. Their their tree with rotting raw meat. Jesus. Can you believe that? It was it was pretty weird. But um anyway. What do you think it was about animal liberation that changed you? The book that is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not exciting, but I just thought that that first chapter um made just such a convincing case um that pain is pain. Yeah. Um and that, you know, we have a brain, a central nervous system, we're made of flesh, bone and blood. Um, we're fundamentally the same as other animals. And, you know, just because other animals may be less intelligent than us, we don't use that as any kind of meaningful indicator of rights for other humans. You know, we don't have like a hierarchical society where yeah. we can test on people with intellectual disabilities because they have less intelligence. That isn't, that's just, not okay. Even people who have slightly lower IQ. Or slightly lower say, IQ, whatever it is. Some, you get less money or you, yeah. you know, you, you get less, fewer rights. Exactly. You that's, speak, that's, you have like 10% of the First Amendment because you're less intelligent than me. Yep. And yeah. so that, that first chapter, I thought, made that case. And then the next few chapters just laid out really the horrors of what happens in animal testing labs and happens in factory farms. And it was just... I did not know any of that at the time, you know? I didn't I know there were pictures in the middle of the book, I remember, yeah, of hens really in battery grim, cages and, and, you know, calves in wooden veal crates and all of that. And uh, it just awakened a sense of horror. Yeah. I mean, it just really did. And I just went vegan pretty much immediately, actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe like over a one-month period I transitioned or something. Did you know Singer was a very important political philosopher or did you even know who Peter Singer was? I, I didn't I didn't know who he was at all before I read Animal Liberation. Yeah. But after I read Animal Liberation, I got super interested in him actually and yeah. I've, I've read like every one of his books now. Yeah, he's, I, he's an amazing writer. I and really like Peter Singer. I'll probably, stick up for him. I'd say he's probably the most important philosopher of, of the last generation. And very interestingly, his most important work I think he'll be judged by history as being important because of animal liberation. Animal I think so but, too. But yeah. Within the philosophy, if we make it that far as a civilization, oh, we will. We will. I'm very confident. You, <laughs> okay. you know me. I'm optimistic about the future. Yeah. But his most important work, I think, he wrote affluent, uh, affluence, famine, affluence, and morality. I think it was a couple of years before animal liberation. So he's mm-hmm. he's mostly known. For his about the person drowning in the pond, pond and that yeah, whole metaphor. The you don't want to ruin your suit and how. Yep. Which relates to animal rights, but it's not actually the central argument of, of that paper. It has, it's about poverty, mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of why it's become influential outside of animal rights circles. Um, two things I want to say about that book. One is, I, I actually think that part of the power of that book is, at least for me, someone with a lot of stature and credibility, who's obviously a good writer, making incredibly dramatic political statements. I think there's something important to that. Even if initially when you read them, the political statements seem like they're too much. I don't know if you had this reaction, but I had the reaction when I first read the book, probably like a year or two before you, if you read it in 1999, 2000. I, think I read it, was, it in 01. Okay, I think I read it in 97, 98. Okay. And I was like first going to college because um, I'm a few years older than you. 
I remember reading the first sentence of the preface and I've relayed this story before. I'm going to relay it again because it's, it just shows you how much you can change and how much a strong statement that can be defended <laughs> can be a very powerful force for change. But the first sentence is, this is a book about the tyranny of human over non-human animals. Yeah, It's unfortunate because subsequent editions of Animal Liberation have kind of moderated that language and like the preface to like the 1984 edition and the 1996. I mean, I don't remember the exact years, but the 1975 edition, the preface of the first version said, the first words you read are, this is a book about the tyranny of human over non-human animals. And I, I remember yeah, reading I that remember and thinking, this is crazy. Tyranny? I mean, uh-huh. and this is coming from someone who is an animal lover. Like I was obsessed with animals and protecting animals. I'd read about conservation. I'd like the book 50 Ways Kids Could Save the Earth. And I thought I'm going to like make sure I recycle my plastic because I don't want any of it to get into the, the ocean and poison the turtles. And, and I want to stop global warming for the polar bears. And I didn't think about vegetarianism very much, but I definitely cared a lot about animals. And even for someone who is, my one obsession in life was animals. I loved my dogs. I loved all animals. I went to zoos all the time because I loved animals. That book was just so absurd to me um, because of that first sentence. But then the second sentence that's really important, which isn't even really a full sentence, it's just the title of the first chapter, is all animals are equal. Mm-hmm. Right, yep. And that kind of explains the first sentence. Because mm-hmm. the reason this is a tyranny is because if you believe all animals are equal, then what's happening to animals is a tyranny. It's ruled by fear. It's ruled by violence. It's, it's ruled by mass atrocity. Everywhere we go, the animals... Yep flee their homes are burned yep. down or they're slaughtered yep you know in the wild and it's an abuse of power it's it's a massive abuse of power on a numerical scale and just a qualitative scale in terms of the degree of suffering unlike anything that's been seen at least in our species history and probably right. in the history of the planet earth there's no form of organized violence as 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 dramatic and terrifying and brutal as what we've done to all the other living creatures in this earth i completely agree yeah, and so, it's and it's for a burger that's what, for, that's what makes it almost even worse to me is it's for the most for the trivial shit. Answers. Yeah. So, but even though those sentences were shocking to me and I thought they were stupid when I first read them, I still thought to myself, well, I should just keep reading because I'm an animal person. It's kind of a provocative statement. And the first chapter is just so elegantly argued. It's very, it is, very yeah. powerful. You know, I still think it's the best piece of moral philosophy on animal rights that's ever been written. Yeah, me too. And this brings me to my second point, which is in that same conversation I was having with Rob Willer and Gabriel Spark, I hope his name is Gabriel Spark because <laughs> you said <laughs> I it like don't remember. times. And, but there was a third grad student whose name I'm also forgetting, and I'm sorry to you as well, but she's a woman, a great sociologist, um, and very, very smart, who's done a lot of research into identity formation and what causes identity formation. And a lot of it probably is just social norms, you know, like, when you're in Rome, you do as the Romans do. So people can adapt very quickly to new cultures when the people around them. This is why, you know, the rural Southerner who's really conservative, when they go to a coastal elite university like Harvard or Stanford, they quickly adopt the norms of their new school, which is why, in many ways, the fear of all these rural Southerners of our kids getting corrupted in college is, I mean, it's kind of fair. <laughs> you might think it's a good corruption, but it does happen to people. But the point she made is um, the other reason college is a time of identity formation it's not just because of social influence. It's because people's identity changes when they have room for introspection. And college is a moment where you have a lot of freedom. Mm. You don't have the schedule pressures, the ideological demands, the financial demands that most adults have. And so we either have to create or find people who are in these moments of intro- intro- introspection. And introspection happens when you're in transition. So one of the reasons I'm about to move to San Francisco is San Francisco is one of the cities where there's massive transition. People come in and out all the time. Um, people are 
are not fixed in their viewpoints about the world. It's actually one of the reasons Silicon Valley has exploded is because they have this immigrant you know, melting pot of all these people transitioning in their lives in very deep and fundamental ways. So they're open to new perspectives. They can be yeah, creative. And they can reinvent themselves. They can reinvent themselves too because yep. they're not just trapped to the same church, the same set of friends, the same cultural norms, the same restaurants as they've always been. They're in a new place. And, and I think you either have to find people in that place or you have to make space for people to engage in that introspection. And I, I don't really know how to do the latter. I think yeah. I know a little bit of how to do the former. I previously thought it was mostly university campuses, but actually university campuses have become very conservative places over the last five years. And, you know, not politically, not politically conservative but, in terms of, but just in terms of capacity for change, yeah. willingness to engage in introspection as opposed to having a fixed viewpoint that is yeah. based on just the prevailing norms around me. And I think college students, and I think there's a lot of evidence of this, are very unwilling to take risks right now in a way that honestly people in Silicon Valley are not. You know, there's a lot of college dropouts. In Silicon mm. Valley, there's a lot of people who are from foreign countries and are learning a language and just maybe know a little coding. And I could be wrong about this, but I think it is a place where there's openness to change. Mm-hmm. We'll find out if I'm right. <laughs> Anyways, th- sorry, that was it. So um, you're you're really interested in animals because of animal liberation. So tell me the story of how, even though you saw this as just basically an all-inclusive issue, how yeah. did you end up becoming an expert in vivisection? Yeah. So I think the first thing that I can remember was, um, so I very first started at the U of U. I was, a, I was a dropout at the U of U before I went back later, by the way, if you're wondering how these years make sense. Okay. But I first started as a student at the University of Utah when I graduated high school in 2003. Mm-hmm. And um, I knew we had an animal lab on campus. Huh. And I wanted to learn more about what was going on. You know, I had read Animal Liberation. And, you know, if there had been a pig farm on campus, I would have wanted to learn about that too. Um, So there was an animal lab on campus, and I wanted to learn more. And I think I actually, like, called the lab. And I was like, I would like to interview someone there. Um, And I did. As an animal rights activist? Did you say I think I just said I was a student. I was a student at the U of U, and I'm interested in learning more about what's going on at this lab. It was was called the Animal Resource Center at the time. They've since changed the name to the Comparative Medicine Center to make it more euphemistic. Even more euphemistic. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So you don't even know there's animals there now. But it was called the Animal Resource Center, and I interviewed this guy, and um, I remember... One of the things, he, he he was the first person who told me that beagles are the most common breed of dog used in testing. Wow. And I he said- just said this openly. Yeah, because I said, what kind of animals do you have here? Yeah. You know, and he said, we have a lot of rats and mice, of course, you know, we have rabbits. And then he said, we have monkeys and we have beagles. Hmm. I'm like, why beagles specifically? And he said something along the lines of, well, because beagles are a very docile breed. And when you're doing something that may be causing them pain, they don't bite you back. Wow. And I just remember, I didn't say it out loud, of course, but at the time I was like, man, what an asshole. (laughs) Like I'm picking specifically on an animal that's that's gentle. That's why I'm picking them because they're gentle. I can't believe he said that to you. He just said it just that plainly. He didn't know that you were an animal rights activist. So this guy who actually ran this lab, his name was Jack Taylor. Hmm. And if you look into his history, he ran the animal lab at the U of U for like close to 50 years. He was an old timer even when I had reached him. So, I mean, he was so... Cartesian mm-hmm. kind of outlook on animals that they don't really suffer. Yeah. I mean, he said some pretty crazy things um, in our interview. And I just think, you know, and I was like, wow, this lab's messed up. I need to organize against it or something. Sure. And so I started to put together protests. And then the other thing that I did was I did a uh, state records request. It was my first time ever doing one of these. I was 18 years old. 
and I filed a public records request, which is basically like Freedom of Information Act, but on the state level. And I wanted to learn more about their uh, monkey testing. I focused on the primates. Mm-hmm. And I asked for their protocols. And the University of U... And a protocol is like a written description of the experiment. Mm-hmm. And I was you know, a freshman at the U of U, 18 years old. And the, fre- and the U of U denied my request for the protocols. And I appealed and I went in front of what's called the State Records Committee, mm-hmm. uh, which is like kind of a quasi-judicial group of people that hears disputes over open records. And I remember it was me... And the two attorneys from the University of Utah on the other side, Jack Taylor, that same guy I interviewed, and they actually brought in an animal researcher as well who claimed that he was harassed. It's not by me, but that animal rights people had harassed him and that he had even like bought a gun to protect himself because he was so terrified of animal rights people. And they were doing everything they could to get this records committee to not grant me access to the records. Hmm. But I still won. Wow. And um, you can go back and read articles about that. Um, it was in the paper and stuff. And Man, that must have felt so good as an 18-year-old. It felt you know, really good. Really powerful institution, <laughs> lawyers. Yep. And, and their lawyers were like freaking out and angry yeah. that they lost they couldn't believe it they were so pissed off at the committee and um you, you know, win um because their legal arguments sucked yeah i mean honestly they just, they, no they just had bad arguments and they were just trying to scare the committee yeah. into you know you don't want to and you know what's funny is 20 you know years later they're still doing this same shit yeah. they're still saying these scary animal rights people are why you can't have transparency mm-hmm. um so they're, they're they're using the same tactics against me now as they were when i was a freshman yeah. um but when when i won you know it was definitely a bit of a david and goliath kind of feel to it and, um, you know, I think it just kept me going. You know, I wanted to keep going. I got that one victory and, you know, that felt good. And um, so that was, you know, I think it just started from there. And I, you know, I eventually did get records from the U of U and then I had to learn what I was looking at. Mm-hmm. You know, I got, okay, I got these protocols and I got these vet records and daily care logs of animals in labs and they're using all these acronyms. What's an IACUC? You know, mm-hmm. what is this? What is this? I didn't know what any of this was. And so I was learning about it at age 18, 19, because that's one thing that people should understand. Like, if you want to try to make change and and you have an, 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 an opposition, mm-hmm. right? It's very important that you understand that opposition, sure. that you understand the way they conduct business, the way they run things, so that you can identify points of weakness. Um, all of that's really important. Know, know your enemy, right? Mm-hmm. That's like exhibit a of the art of war yeah um yeah exactly so you have to know your enemy so that was what i was doing and then it you know i so i started learning about all that and then it kind of this weird dynamic happened where you know often i became one of the only people in a room of animal rights people who knew anything substantive about animal testing so it it ended up kind of being this self-propelling thing where you know people wanted me to keep working on animal testing issues because it's what i'd worked on before but like i said it wasn't necessarily like i didn't have any greater passion for that issue yeah i don't think it's it's any more meaningful than factory farming or the circus yeah i don't i don't do those kinds of hierarchies that i know like some people think we should only be talking about chicken farming you know because of the numbers of animals yeah you know and i I don't subscribe to any of those kinds of theories or some people say we should only be talking about chimpanzees because they're closer to us. That actually makes a little more sense, yeah. if I'm being honest with you, hmm. um, because I, I think that that actually gets more at the heart of trying to tear down speciesism as a whole. Sure. This whole concept, this house of cards we've built up that humans are so special and every other animal can be lumped up together. And I think yeah. if, you know, as soon as we extend rights to one species, I, I think it will cascade. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and the opposition says that themselves, and I think it's sure. there's some truth to it. Yeah. 
All right, we've been talking for a couple hours, but there's one <laughs> last question I definitely want to ask you. Given that I'm about to go into preliminary hearings in Dane County for an investigation and rescue at one of the three largest beagle, beagle research and breeding facilities in the nation, Ridgeland Farms, what is one thing about the use of dogs, specifically in research, you think most people should know about? Well, there's a lot and of things. And I guess secondarily, mm-hmm. is Anthony Fauci responsible for it? <laughs> <laughs> Answer both of those questions in turn. Well, Anthony Fauci is the head of the, um, what is it, National Institute of Infectious Diseases, something like that, yeah. which is one of the largest agencies under the National Institutes of Health. Mm-hmm. And the National Institutes of Health is the single largest funder of animal experimentation in the world. Mm -hmm. So Fauci is definitely an important person in the world of animal experimentation. Um, I mean, and you're just fooling yourself if you don't think he is. Yeah. Um, This has been very controversial in the animal rights movement in the media recently because a lot of animal rights groups have gone after Fauci for beagle research. Yeah. And And I'm glad they do. some opposition by people on the left saying essentially you're tarnishing him and amplifying right-wing talking points and maybe even being funded by right-wing organizations which the funding part i think is not true as far as i know who even cares if it is yeah i mean i mean if if, a good critique if a right-wing organization says the sun rises in the east they're still right um you know and this has been a a big huge issue of controversy within the animal rights and even on twitter i mean anthony fauci and beagles were were trending on twitter quite a bit over the last couple months because of the controversy but, yeah. Sorry, I interjected. No, that's okay. Just, that's just okay. You, I mean, I think that what you're just dis- why I asked that question. Sure, sure. I understand why you asked. And and I think that that's another example of what you were describing earlier in our conversation with negative yeah, polarization right. of, you know, we have to Fauci is like our boy or something, <laughs> and so people have to rally and defend him no matter what <laughs> the attacks are, even if they are yeah. valid. Um and and you know that that that's part of our, you know, society has this diminished capacity now to just look at evidence and think about things dispassionately aside from, you know, people are defending Fauci over this Beagle stuff in reality because they're projecting their politics around COVID onto it. And they think that Fauci was, you know, a a, a hero during the COVID pandemic. And I I don't even think you have to get into that debate. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that that's separate from the animal testing and the animal experimentation. And the NIH is... Um, stuck in the dark ages with, you know, half of their grants go to fund animal experimentation. And so many of these experiments are transparently stupid. Mm -hmm. um, If you look at them, they, they, they do enrich the people who carry out the experiments. They allow people to publish a lot of papers, but do they lead to anything resembling a cure or a treatment? Hell no. Mm -hmm. Many of these experiments don't. And, and, and Fauci and all of the heads of these institutes need to be criticized for that. Um, one thing, you know, but to your original question, what's one thing that, you know, people don't know about dog testing? Well, there's really a lot of things that people should know. Um, one is that they don't have to even come out of their cages ever. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's technically a, a, what you would call an exercise requirement in the Animal Welfare Act that says dogs are supposed to get exercise. But the way the federal government interprets that is if their cage is twice as large as the minimum regulated size... The USDA, who enforced the Animal Welfare Act, says that dog can exercise in their cage mm-hmm. because they can, like, walk two feet forward and two feet back. back. Yeah. That counts. They can turn around. That's enough. So these dogs, lots of these dogs in labs, never even see the sun, never touch grass. Um, you know, you know, my partner and I had a rescued beagle who was used in animal testing for, like, 12 years. Her name was Ellie. And, um, you know, when we got her, she was scared of grass. She'd never seen grass. She would walk 
like there'd be like a little concrete strip that she'd try to walk like a balance beam on wow. rather than touching the grass, you know? And, um, you know, she would immediately get submissive. If we went to go pet her, she would roll over and look frightened. And she was obviously wow. scared of people. And, um, yeah, so I mean, their 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 lives are very deprived. You know, yeah. they're just in these cages. Almost every interaction they have with the person is the person grabbing them, and maybe they're going to do something like an oral gavage. Yeah. That's something else people maybe should know about. That's really horrible that happens to dogs in labs, where a gavage is basically a plastic tube that they shove down their esophagus and into their stomach, so that they can pump a chemical directly into their stomach and be able to measure exactly what the dose was. That's and why they do that. This is all while they're not sedated, too. They're alive and absolutely yep. experiencing this entire thing. Yep, not sedated. They shove this tube down their throat, pump them full of whatever the experimental substance could be. It could be a drug. It could be a pesticide. It could be an industrial chemical. And why do they have to pump it instead of just feeding it to the dogs? Because they want to get a precise measurement of the exactly dose. How much. So, okay. you know, you feed it to a dog and you don't know how much of that kind of falls out of their mouth or wow. doesn't get ingested. So they want to be able to have a precise measurement of how much of yeah. that substance is absorbed, how much of it actually it reaches ingested. their stomach. Yeah. Um, they, they want to know that. So, you know, you can look up video of oral gavage if you want. And they do this to monkeys. They do it to rats. Oral That's gavage is a... A common thing done to animals in labs, but it happens to dogs too. That's and what happens to ducks and geese in foie gras, which has been that's banned. exactly right. So that's we ban we, we ban this tactic and this uh, this form of exploitation for ducks and geese in food production, but we're still doing it to dogs every day. This is happening we're to still dogs doing in labs. It to dogs. Yep. What the fuck? I thought we love dogs in this yep. country. Yep, and there's like sixty thousand dogs yeah. in labs, something in that neighborhood. Um, you so know, one, of the, yep. one of the most disgusting things that I don't even remember. You might have sent us a study, but when we were researching Ridgeland sort of trying to determine, you know, what are the companies we should be investigating. The, probably one of the grimmest studies we found was oral gavage being used to force feed dogs laundry detergent. You know, and even the study itself said many of the dogs were vomiting blood for hours and then dying afterwards. Mm-hmm. It's like, yep. this is happening to man's best friend? Yep. I think to this day, there's still a requirement for pesticides. Yeah. Um, new pesticides that come on the market go through a beagle study. Jesus. Um, where, you know, and they used to have like 28-day beagles and six-month beagles had to be force-fed pesticides. I think they got rid of one of them, but they still have the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so pesticides, too, um, which, you know, that's pretty horrific. Yeah. Um, we're pumping dogs full of poison. And the thing is, is that there's no such thing as an illegal experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as you get all the right paperwork filled out and your oversight committee approves it, the, the law can't touch you. And in fact, a lot of the state legislatures in this country are moving more towards deregulation. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the legal framework, um, things in many ways are, are taking steps back. Although something promising did just happen in Virginia. I mm-hmm. should acknowledge that. But um, overall, you know, there's there's a lot of steps back being made. But yeah. let me ask, can I ask you a question? Please. Does anyone ever turn the table on, on a podcasts and ask you the host question oh, all the time yeah. <laughs> so here's a question that i i like to ask other actors because i you know we all um i i think being an animal activist is like 95 percent losing and five percent winning mm-hmm. um like you have to really get you if you're going to be in it for the long haul you have to really develop some sort of thick skin about you're like almost <laughs> always going to lose yeah. right don't you think 
Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. I don't so, think it's just animal rights activism. I don't think it's activism in general. Animal yeah. rights activism probably has a lower win rate than some movements, especially now. But most of the movements we see as having a, win, had, having a high win rate had a very low win rate at 1.2. That's definitely true. So, like, yeah. I, I tied Evan Wilson on the podcast. And if you talk to Evan Wilson about the 1980s as a gay rights activist, it's like, it was, in many ways, it was worse because they couldn't even really be out and sure. talking openly about their issues because so many people would just attack them for advocating. Yeah. And I think for advocacy alone, I mean, there is a punishment, but it's not like you're disowned by your family or sent to an institution or fired Absolutely. just yeah. by being vegan. It's right. different than being it a is gay different. rights activist in the 1980s. That was a scary time to be an activist. Definitely. Yeah. That, that I can absolutely see that. Especially around the AIDS pandemic. It was like yep. people oh, yeah. were physically scared of you, too, for being gay. It's like, absolutely. holy shit. Yep. Like, people aren't willing to be in the same room with you mm-hmm. just because you say you're gay. Well, and, and there's still vestiges activist. of that today, right? Like, a gay men still can't donate blood. I know. It's right? fucked up. So, I mean, there's still vestiges it's of that, fucked up. that fear. Um, but anyway, I want to ask you, so 95% losing, 5% winning. So, I like to ask other activists, like... What do you think is like the most significant success you've been a part of? And why do you think it was a success? Yeah, so 100% the fur ban in California is the most significant success I've been a part of. The reason it's a success is very different than most people think. It's not because we banned fur in California, not because we convinced a bunch of legislators to vote for us. All those things are true. Uh, Not even necessarily because we got a lot of media attention, although we got a huge amount of media attention and just so many publications all over the world are writing about how you know, California, which is equivalent to the fifth largest economy in the world, if we're a separate nation, has now completely banned the sale of fur. And while California is a fairly warm weather climate, it is also one of the most important leaders in the fashion industry in the world, with the LA market being probably, along with New York, one of the two or three top cities in the world in terms of fashion. There's a lot of fur sold in LA. This is an industry that has hundreds of millions of dollars in sales. Not as much as factory farming, but still very, very significant. And we won. The reason we won and the reason why the victory was significant was because it was a massive grassroots um, victory. And we mobilized so many people and developed so much capacity. There were so many people leading small groups all over the state of California and, frankly, even around the nation, doing call-in campaigns, writing letters, um, talking to their friends and family members and getting all of them involved on social media in some way. And it was it was a really inspiring grassroots effort. And it was grassroots. We didn't actually get much support from big nonprofits. Um, the legislator themselves was honestly, you know, <laughs> could talk about this now. I'm pretty open about this. Laura Friedman wasn't the best ally for animals. It was not being driven by our office. It was 100% driven by the grassroots activists. And it was a demonstration of the fact that, like, all the work we had put into movement building over the years, I don't even think that victory itself was so much the reason we had built that power, but it was sort of an indicator of the political power we've developed. I actually think since then our power has decreased, largely due to infighting which is mm-hmm. terrible. Sure. It plagued I think that's movements. happening all over. Um, but we still have a lot of power. And we saw that recently with the moratorium bill that I had very lim- limited involvement in. But the idea that one of the biggest farm states in the nation would pass, or not even pass, because we didn't pass it, but that even we got to the point where we're introducing a bill to ban any new construction in factory farms, that is like an unbelievable victory mm-hmm. in a state like that. You know? Yeah. Even just getting introduced. So, the fur ban was 100% the biggest victory, and the reason it was important, the reason it was won was because of the amount of grassroots support, which was, you know, it was passed in 2019, I think. It was essentially a seven-year effort of, of organizing, getting us to that point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So why, why did that happen? Why did the stars align there? Why was the grassroots support there, but not on something else? I think the grassroots support is going to be there for whatever issue you need to fight on. As long as, I mean, there's... 
there's a universe of possibility. And within that universe, you can, if you've developed a powerful movement that has strategic capacity and has leadership and organizing structures, so everyone can kind of figure out why we're doing this and you have effective mechanisms for spreading that out, not just one, one lecture that everyone listens to. Cause, but you know, like conversations like this are happening across the state where people are saying, why are we doing this? Why is it important? What do we do? You know, how do we achieve this? Um, I think that people were ready for any big campaign that we wanted to do um, because we've been talking about, you know, we had this roadmap for animal liberation that we had been talking about for five years Mm -hmm. before 2019 saying at some point we're going to need to politically mobilize lots of people. And when we mobilize, just even if we lose part of the reason we do it is for the exercise itself. It's like flexing a muscle. Absolutely. You you get stronger every time you do it. Even if, so even if you try to lift, 200 pounds in a bench press and you don't succeed in getting it up, you get stronger for the next time. Maybe next time you can lift 170 pounds. And, yep. and the next time you, you learn from your failures. You learn from your failures. So I think the reason people support it is because there was genuine strategic capacity and genuine understanding of the theory of change. And the exact legislative initiative honestly didn't matter. I mean, I think the reason we ended up focusing on fur is just the happenstance of one particular legislator in the city of San Francisco who was very moved by a factory farming video we did. Mm-hmm. You know, it was Katie Tang in San Francisco. Like I sat down with her, showed her Operation Death Star, a VR experience shot in the state of Utah, and she came out like genuinely moved. I mean, just, I think she was crying. She was clearly very moved by the experience and said, I want to know what I can do to help. And we pitched her on a few ideas and she just picked the fur band. And once we got it done in San Francisco, it was... I said this at, on the steps of City Hall when we passed the fur ban in San Francisco. I said, I think at the time I said within 10 years. I didn't know it was going to be within a year and a half. Uh-huh. I said within 10 years. And I was, I, I, this was not me just being optimistic. I was very confident that if San Francisco can pass this, it's going to pass in California. Yeah. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. Yeah. So That's a great story. So what's, what's the most inspiring victory you've been a part of? <sighs> That's a good question. Um it's probably similar in a lot of the ways to your victory, I would actually say. I I think the horse-drawn carriages here. Mm, it's all exciting. Um, and, you know, I mean, it may not be, you know, obviously that's not as big of a victory as California banning fur. I yeah. get that. You know, that's obviously a, a huge, huge milestone. But the horse-drawn carriages, so this was in 2013. And just to, you know, give people a little bit of context, there was a horse who in the middle of summer was pulling a carriage here in Salt Lake. You can Google this if you want to read about it, but this horse's name was Jerry, and he collapsed in the street. I remember reading about this. Yep, yeah. and and we heard wow. word from someone who was nearby. They called and said, hey, there's a horse here on the street. And Amy and I like rushed there, and Amy had just actually recently bought a really professional camera. Mm. And we took a bunch of pictures of, of Jerry collapsed in the street, gave him to the media, and it became a, a, a really big controversy here locally in 2013 yeah. over this horse dying. And it was like 98 degrees when this mm. horse was working. Was Jerry already dead when you were there, or was he just... He looked just, dead. Um, I think he, he was, was barely alive. Mm. Um, they had to, like, lift him up with, like, a forklift, kind of. Um, some kind of piece of machinery. Yeah. that he, he couldn't stand on his it's own so power. Fucked. It was so sad. It was so terrible. And then the, also the, the horse carriage company initially lied and said he was alive uh-huh. and released a picture of a different horse wow. and said it was Jerry. And what was funny is the Salt Lake Tribune even ran that story. They said, yeah. oh, look, Jerry's okay. Here's a picture of him. And I looked at the picture, and I'm like, that's not, that's not fucking horse. Jerry. Can't you guys use your eyes? <laughs> like, compare Amy's pictures with this picture. Yeah. Like, it's not the same horse. And, like, I called the reporter, and I was like, 
paint, you know, hey, dude, look at like his nose. Look uh-huh. at this horse's nose. There's like, there's you know, differences. there's differences. And so Did they became, can see that they lied and that that wasn't oh, Jerry. Well, they, as soon as I pointed out, they were like, you're right. That's not the same horse. Huh. And so then they called the company. This was really funny when all this happened. But they called the company. The company was like, "Oh, I'm sorry, we gave you the wrong picture." But he's alive. But he's, he's alive. And then the and then the reporters like, "Can I come see Jerry?" Uh-huh. And they were like, mm, "No." Wow. <laughs> it's so and up. so then they had to. They eventually had to come clean. Dude, like, how do these everyone companies is, get away with lying? I know so they lie often. so much, don't Smithfield they? Smithfield has lied about us so many times yeah. and lied about the situation. Oh, and the animal experimenters lie too. They lie so much. And, yep. they, and reporters don't hold them to account enough. They it's don't. Terrible. Reporters. The, I don't know what it is with reporters. Like Glenn Greenwald. Yeah. You know. So, for example, here's the lie that Smithfield's told repeatedly about us. They always say we stayed during investigation in Circle Four. And this particular shot. I don't know if you remember this shot. There's a shot from Operation Death Star where there's a mother pig with all these dead piglets right behind her, and it's like feces and blood, and they're rotting. And clearly, the conditions are just decrepit, and they're neglecting the animals. And they claim we set that all up. Yeah. That we brought in the feces, the blood. Here's one of the things, too. This, and this, there's yeah. no evidence for this at all. No evidence. I, I'm sure. I'm sure you're and, right. And, and, yeah. and media journalists have repeated these allegations well, without any sort of scrutiny. One of the things that they're one of the reasons they're lying is so effective with reporters, in my experience with reporters, is all they have to do is like make the reporter confused. And then they maybe don't even report it or yeah. talk about it. That's so true. like I've I've had experiences before with animal labs where mm-hmm. I'll I'll be talking about, you know, this experimenter killed these three monkeys yeah. in this experiment. They kill these three monkeys and then they'll call the lab and they'll be like, No, our experiments are not lethal. They're, yeah. they're, there's they the, these, these monkeys were not killed. And then I'll be like, Hey, reporter. It says it right here. Or I'll yeah. be like, This says necropsy report. Yeah. You don't conduct a <laughs> necropsy on a living animal. animal. Yeah. And they were like, Hmm, how do you know what necropsy means? And I'm like, yeah. What do you mean? And then like the fucking Exactly. Oh, and then, they, but then they're like, "How do you know that this yeah. necropsy is for one of those animals?" Yeah, and, yeah. I, and I'll and I'll be like, "Okay, well, you see where this is the protocol number here, mm-hmm. and this is the protocol." And I'll I'll yeah. try to connect the dots for them. But so it. often yeah. the reporters are like, "Hmm, well." Well, they're telling me point blank that they didn't kill the monkeys, and you may be right, but I'm not going to print that because they're insisting yeah. that they didn't. And I'm like, "Okay, their lie worked." Yeah, they, they've scared work. you yeah. out of reporting a plain truth yeah. in these documents Absolutely. because you, you you cannot fathom they would just lie to your face. Yeah, but, but they, they are. They, they will lie to your face. And the reason they lie to your face is exactly because what's happening yeah. right now, they know you won't print Come it. Yeah. And, it and works. It works. And that's yeah, what's horrible. Right. And I see, and we, I'm sure you've seen this pattern so oh, yeah. many times. Um, it, it's, it's really frustrating. I'll, I'll, I remember too, sorry, really quick, you know, tangent. Um, PolitiFact, mm-hmm. all of these fact-checking organizations are such bullshit. Yeah. Um, and we had an experience, at, you know, when I was at PETA with PolitiFact fact-checking a. Um, I wrote a script mm-hmm. that uh, we had Bill Maher do a uh, auto dial on. Mm-hmm. So like a, the, he, he a, a phone call went out to like every number at UW Madison campus mm-hmm. talking about a cat experiment. And, you know, it was like six sentences, you know, 30 cats a year are killed. They have holes drilled in their skulls. Every single thing I wrote in there, I was able to back up with records we got from UW. Mm -hmm. PolitiFact said, we want to do a fact check on this robocall Mm -hmm. and everything that was said. So I worked with the PolitiFact reporter and I gave them copious amounts of documentation of every single word of that statement. And then when they ran their piece, they said it was half true. And when I was like, how is it half true? Everything we true. said in there yeah. is 100% accurate. And when I read the the piece, they just said something like, 
While this all may be true, it's missing important context about how animal research saves lives yeah, and all this like, stuff. And I'm like, mean it's not true. It exactly. Means, it's like yeah. you. Th- this is not you running. You're Politifact. Yeah. yeah. You are not an op-ed column. Absolutely. And and I just thought I, that was I had a real aha moment. Yeah. What I was like, wow, even these fact-checking organizations, yeah, they're up. bullshit. Yeah. And and I just couldn't believe that happened. Dude, but when you've worked in the media for a while, as both of us have. There are journalists. I mean, honestly, the journalists of integrity are the ones who kind of admit their biases. Uh huh. Like Glenn Greenwald, he he says, "I have a point of view." Sure, and that's true, and it's probably going to. Oh, I don't think he hides things. his points of he view. He doesn't hide his <laughs> point of view at all. At all. And yeah. like him or love them, and I think we both love a lot of them. And mm-hmm. we might disagree with him on some stuff, certainly out of outside of animal rights, but on his animal rights stuff, he's spot on. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has a point of view, and he he admits that. And this false neutrality that so many journalists have, it, and it's the, the, the other thing that Glenn does differently is. He has a point of view, but he actually does dive deep. Uh huh. <laughs> Unlike most journalists, nowadays. absolutely. Most yep. journalists, investigative journalism, has been shriveled up. Yep. Into a little skeleton that doesn't even have any bones or flesh. It's like a dead zombie creature that yeah. doesn't have the energy to actually dive beyond the Twitter. Yep. The Twitter headline of some story. Well, it's, I think it's, Glenn. It's kind of distressing. Glenn. Glenn recognizes the threat of when people in power lie. Yeah, he does. And um, I, I think more and more reporters, it's like that's like not even a big deal anymore. Almost yeah. like if if they're whatever they're saying, if it makes good programming, yep. they're fine just running it. Yeah. Um. And and no one's really diving into like the actual substance of this stuff. Yeah, I think that's true. Um. But anyway, that, that was a long tangent, you know, but the horse John carriage thing, uh, you know, we, we eventually were able to get the city here to ban it. That's awesome. You know, they pass an ordinance and horse John carriages for a very long time were a, um, what do you call it? Like an icon of Salt, Salt Lake city. city. They would go, they go around the Mormon temple for decades. They were a thing here. And, um, you know, I, I definitely think, you know, 20 years ago, if you said, do you think they'll ever ban the horse-drawn carriages? People in Salt Lake would be like, no, no way. way. People are yeah. beloved. People love the horse-drawn carriages. Also, this is fucking Utah. <laughs> and it's Utah, right? <laughs> this is Utah. And so we got Salt Lake. I think you're one of the first cities in the nation to ban horse uh, When we banned them, I don't know if this is still true, but when we banned them, we were the largest city, city in the United in the States nation. to have yeah, a ban on horse-drawn it. carriages. We were the largest city. And, um, and yeah, it was just, it was, I was in shock when we won, kind yeah. of. I just, I had never... It felt like I never fucking won, yeah. <laughs> you know. So how did you think you won? What What do you think um, the thing was? Was it just the story of Jerry? Was that powerful? Was it the industry had other concerns? Was it just good organizing? All of the above? It was. I think all, all the, the above. above. I also think um, myself and a couple other people were highly committed. Yeah. Um, and I mean, just really working on this, you know, night and day weekends. Really, you know, we did records requests and got. We we thought of every angle we could. Um, to push to move the ball forward, um, we really did. So, like, we got, for example, police reports every time there was a traffic accident involving a horse carriage. Mm-hmm. Got those police reports, and we like networked with traffic safety people, mm-hmm. people who were concerned about traffic safety. Yeah. Um. You know, we 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 just networked with everyone we could think of, and um. Also, just frankly, um, a lot of just having a lot of conversations with city council members, mm-hmm. really. Spending a lot of time calling them, meeting them, going... To, it sounds cheesy, but I mean, I really mean it. Like, going to city council meetings, speaking during the public comment period, mm-hmm. emailing them when, you know, it's off hours or whatever, um, meeting with them, 
Um, you know, I just really viewed it as here in Salt Lake, we have a seven person city council mm-hmm. and I got to change four of their minds. That's it. If I can get four people on board, we won. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I just identified who I knew was never going to vote for the ban, mm-hmm. who I knew was almost certainly going to vote for the ban and then who I needed to work on. Sure. And we got to work trying to flip those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, it was, I, I think it was just a lot of old-fashioned organizing i think that that's something that is kind of lacking in the movement right now i think there's just a lot of um desire to do you know flashy things on the street Mm -hmm. a lot of street activism and um i think we need more people doing stuff like calling city council people i I actually do i mean i i I sound like i sound like such a square that you know the animal activist that was uh, the the teenage me would have thought this was the most so boring thing, but yeah. like I I I think that that's just not happening that much anymore. Yeah, um, I think that the animal rights movement in general, I I think is kind of dropping the ball when it comes to lobbying. Mm-hmm. Um, even the large groups are not doing enough lobbying. Yeah. I think large groups, small groups, no one's doing lobbying as much as we should be. Hmm. What was the final tally on that vote? Was it four to three? It was actually seven to zero. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Damn. And here's actually another moral of the story. There were actually three separate votes, this mm-hmm. is true, to ban the horse-drawn carriage. Each one was about four months apart. Mm-hmm. The very first time it was brought up to a vote, we lost one to six. Mm-hmm. The second time it was brought up to a vote, we lost three to four, mm-hmm. which was heartbreaking. And literally, they went down the line to vote, and it was yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Came down to the seventh person, and we were like, <gasps> and then he voted no. And we're like, damn it you know and we yeah. lost again the second vote we thought we might win that night and and then a few months later there was a third vote and in this whole time by the way we were protesting at the slack line mm-hmm. so we were doing picketing we were getting articles in the paper we were talking to city council members we were doing all that kind of like groundwork stuff mm-hmm. building up to the next vote and um and then the third vote happened and it was seven to zero but i think that that's a good moral of the story too like the first vote yeah. that we got we you're lost your horribly yeah. you're flexing your muscles yeah, you're we lost stronger. one to six but we learned something you know we learned that okay that one guy who voted yes he's in the tank you know we got him sure. he, he just voted yes these other six we we knew who to work on sure. and then it was three to four and we, we were able to kind of divert our resources and, yeah. and attention but, it's a good lesson for us all yeah definitely Failure doesn't matter. Success does. You're, there's no, we're, we are going to fail a hundred times before we succeed. Yeah. 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 Right. It's cheesy, but it's true. And all we remember is the success. Yeah. Well, there's I don't a, know. I dwell on the failures too. <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's a lot of things to not like about venture capitalists and venture capital. But one yeah, thing I really <laughs> love about one particular venture capitalist, you know Vino Kosla? No. So he's the head of Coastal Ventures, the founder of Sun Microsystems, which is one of the biggest tech companies, is... Basically, the foundation of everything that's Oracle. Okay. He built Oracle before Larry Ellison turned Oracle into what it is today, which is one of the largest and most profitable companies in the world. Um, so Vino Kosla has, incidentally, invested in a lot of the, the plant-based startups. Like He's, I think, one of the largest, maybe the single largest investor in Hampton Creek, which became Just, Just Mayo, and so on. And he's, he's, he's actually an animal advocate. I thought he was just like a green energy, sort of sustainable food guy. But he's spoken recently about how awful it is that we macerate all the chickens from eggs, that one of the reasons he's really concerned about egg farms in particular is because of the degree of suffering over an extended period of time because these chickens live for you know two years in these terrible cages. And the fact that these male chicks, you know, they're creating half of the, the species, the members of the species that are created are just macerated, turned up in these huge engines of violence and bloodshed. 
Um, but he's got a, a great talk at the Stanford GSB about how failure doesn't matter. Success does. And yeah, anyways, I'll let Vinod Kosal speak for itself, but I think it's a okay. great talk. It's, it's really interesting and entertaining too. Cause he's a funny guy, hmm. but yeah. So it's a good lesson. Yeah. And definitely. a reason to be optimistic. I don't know why you're so gloom and doom all the time, Jeremy. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> every failure is just making us stronger. And I just, I just see the path to animal rights so clearly. And do you my, really? Oh yeah. My, my main problem, <laughs> my main problem, not just of animal rights, but a lot of other issues like homelessness or climate change. I mean, climate change is a little bit different because there's a timing concern, but on the other hand, animal rights is a timing issue too. Cause every moment you delay there, that's true. Tens and hundreds of millions of animals that are, going through brutal suffering and so every moment of delay is, is an atrocity but my main problem is just i'm so optimistic that i kind of feel like oh, it doesn't really matter what i do <laughs> hmm. wow i, I don't share that <laughs> i'm just like <laughs> i mean you know my personal role is kind of irrelevant to this and and i know i don't actually find i find i, I think this may be meaningful. you in the uh, gregory spark what was his name <laughs> yeah greg spark i think That's this what may think be his you. name is it could be not yeah. Greg Spark. I'll I think this is you in that illusion, strong. that spark illusion. I no, think. No, I think I, I'm looking. At, I'm not basing it on my personal experiences because I still have a lot of people around me who are very anti-vegan and anti-animal rights activists. I'm basing it on just polling data. I'm basing it on the fact that we have victories that are far faster than I would have expected. You know, like when we set out the roadmap, we said something like the California fur ban was supposed to happen in 2025. It happened in 2019. Yeah, I mean, so there's obviously a bit of a glass half full, glass half empty thing where it's what you want to focus on. Um, I sort of think one of the bottom lines for the animal rights movement has to be numbers of animals being hurt and killed, right? And per capita meat consumption is like still hitting all times high. Almost every year is another all time high. But even in the US, even in the US, per capita meat consumption keeps hitting new highs. The numbers of animals in labs are is not going down. Um, I, you know, here in Utah, I can tell you it's been pretty gloomy, uh, in the rescue world. The animal shelters here are getting overfilled in a way I haven't seen in probably 10 years. Yeah. Um, so it, that's why it's hard to, for me to be optimistic. I honestly have to tell myself though, I think even if things do keep getting worse and worse and worse, Mm -hmm. That doesn't excuse our responsibility to keep mitigating things. Sure. Um, I really believe that. You know, I remember I saw this video that stuck with me of the, I think it was in 2020, the huge wildfires in California. You know, mm-hmm. those huge wildfires in California every year now, so yeah. I don't know. But I think it was 2020, and there was this video that went viral of this huge inferno in this forest, and there was a little bunny hmm. in the flames. Oh, I do remember this. And yeah. this guy Jesus. got out of his car and ran across the freeway to rescue this bunny, bunny in the flames. Yeah. And I thought, what a metaphor that is, because you have this whole giant, how many thousands of acres burned, how many yeah. bunnies probably lost burned their lives, or yeah. not just bunnies, but all the wildlife yeah. there, that smoke inhalation burned. I'm sure that fire caused horrific suffering. But this guy said, not that bunny. Yeah. You know, like, not that one. I can still get that bunny. Yeah. And, um, like, I think that's a good metaphor for all of us, like, as activists. Like, Dude, it, that is you fucking know? awesome. <laughs> I mean, don't you think not that's that true? Not that bunny, yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's he, a great slogan, too. Not that bunny. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to make yeah. that the title for this podcast, Not That Bunny. Okay, sure. Because <laughs> it's, it's where we agree, you know, whether you're a yeah. pessimist or an optimist. I mean, I'm an optimist, but yeah. I agree. Not that bunny. And yeah. it's when enough people say that that the optimists end up being right. Yeah. Although I don't, hopefully can enough people agree to that, that the forest doesn't burn. Yeah. I don't know. I'm worried that we're past the point of that, but, um, 
yeah, this, yeah, I, I had a podcast of Noah Smith, this columnist at Bloomberg, uh-huh. I think agrees with you in this regard. Not necessarily because he's terrified about climate change and wildfires, because he, he's actually more optimistic about the prospect of technology overcoming that problem, but he just thinks the human species lacks the capacity to gauge in long-term thinking. <laughs> I think that's true. I don't agree with that. Yeah, that's why you're I pro-nuclear. Think- i'm not pro-nuclear for the record i'm just not as anti-nuclear as most environmentalists and i think the risks are overblown um i i actually on nuclear i think i think my current view is it's not worth endorsing mostly because it just starts too many fights and there are other technologies that are more important for us to invest in to overcome yeah the climate crisis like solar you know and you know here in utah have you heard of the downwinders no so there was a bunch of um nuclear testing in this part of the country and um a lot of that radioactive fallout blew into utah damn and uh there, there's communities in utah that have like way higher cancer rates and they're called the downwinders jesus and um so i think that there there's that memory here too sure. utah's very i would i don't know if this is still true i guess i don't know what the polling's like now but definitely when i was like in high school there was a pretty strong anti-nuclear sentiment even among conservatives huh. liberals in utah yeah and for the record i haven't done a deep dive into this i'm just yeah trusting to, to some degree that, i yeah, haven't I mean, either i i I read the whole Earth Discipline by Stuart Brand, who's a really brilliant guy and, you know, like a leading environmentalist, although he's become persona non grata, partly because of his views on nuclear. Um, talked to this guy, Saul Griffith, who's a MacArthur Grant winning energy engineer, I think it is, um, about nuclear a little bit. And yeah, I, I'm just, to me, it's just a factual question and I'm not really equipped to answer it, and it's not my main focus, but. Sure. Same for me. All right. Any final thoughts, Jeremy Beckham? Hmm. Other than not that bunny? No, I'll just end there. Not, not that, that bunny. bunny. Yeah. Keep that in mind, everyone. Okay. Thanks for talking to me, Jeremy. Thanks, Wayne. Enjoyed it's, it. It's been a good time. All right. Until next time. Bye bye. All right, Jeremy Beckham. We've got the postscript to the podcast because you promised a very fascinating, gripping story. All right. So the expectations are high, my friend. Well, hopefully they live up to that. I don't know. But um <laughs> this is just an interesting relic about we were talking a lot about dealing with police and being an activist and um this is maybe one of the most memorable stories i have as an activist of dealing with police so in the summer of 2004 um i did a a countrywide protest basically where i drove to each of what what are called national primate research centers mm. so these are these this is in 2004 2004. That's mm-hmm. a long time ago. This was a long time ago. Yeah. That's probably part of why I'm a little more comfortable talking about this whole story now, because a lot of time has elapsed. Huh. But um, so the, the, these are enormous primate labs set up by the federal government. Most of them are affiliated with universities. But when I did this tour, there, there were eight of them. They were uh, in Davis, California, Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, Madison, Wisconsin, Boston, Massachusetts, Atlanta, Georgia, Covington, Louisiana, and San Antonio, Texas. Huh. Those were the eight primate centers, okay? Seven of them are around today. One of them went away. Um, but they all have thousands of monkeys living horrible lives. You drove across the entire country? I drove across the whole country. Just you? Uh, my friend Autumn actually joined me for the last three. Okay. But Otherwise, the first it five, it was just me. Wow. Yep. I drove from Seattle to Portland to Madison to Boston to Atlanta by myself. Jesus. Um, I was 19, actually, at wow. the time. How'd you pay for this? Um, I actually got a small grant from IDA. Okay. Uh, in defense of animals. Huh. There's a spider over there. Oh. <laughs> I'm just wondering if that's a black widow. It's not. Oh, it's that's definitely too bad. 
I wanted, really wanted to see a Black Widow. For I have Black Widows down here, I know, actually. You told me that's yeah. why I've always been thinking. Black Widows are always in their web, though. They're yeah, not. They're not. They're not like around. that. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> Even one will make a web next to me when I sleep. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't wish for that because that seems like a dangerous thing. But um, so anyway, so I Black Widows are always in their web, though. They're yeah, not. They're not. They're not like around. that. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> Even one will make a web next to me when I sleep. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't wish for that because that seems like a dangerous thing. But um, so anyway, so I I drove to each one of these cities that had a huge primate lab and i would do a week-long vigil hmm. outside each one wow. uh protesting it from i i actually it was like 10 days i would like set up on a saturday and go all the way to the next sunday something like that okay. and i'd be there from like 6 a.m till 8 p.m so you'd actually sleep outside of those some of them i would camp at okay. some of them but some of them i would stay at the house of like a supporter we'd okay. found and in defense of animals gave me a small grant sure ida did but um honestly i i I slept in my car for a lot of it. I had very little money, especially towards the end of the trip. I like yeah, totally ran out of money and it was like horrible. <laughs> it was really bad. Local activists would bring me like bagels and fruit and, and like I dumpster dived and yeah, it was bad. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I went across the country on a very small budget, very, very, very small budget. So anyway, one of the things that I would do and, and a friend of mine named Rick Bogle had done a very similar protest in the late nineties, going to each one of these primate labs and one of the things that, that we both did was when sometimes people would stop by my, I basically had a table mm-hmm. and a protest and they would stop by and chat with me about, why are you here today? You know, I, sometimes people would be like, I saw you out here for the last three days straight, you know, and I want to know what it's about. What are you here for? And I would talk to them about animal experimentation and sometimes they'd be horrified and they'd say, what can I do to support you? And so what I did was on this tour, I said, donate a stuffed monkey if you're against what's happening here. And I had a long line next to my booth of stuffed monkeys. And I would take the stuffed monkeys from city to city. And I would say, every one of these stuffed monkeys represents someone who stopped and talked to me and is now against this. Hmm. Okay, and it was this really impressive visual. This line of stuffed monkeys went on for like hundreds of feet at some point, right? And I would take them from city to city. Like I was driving a Toyota 4Runner and it was absolutely stuffed with stuffed monkeys, packed by the end of it. Hundreds of stuffed monkeys. Did anyone try and steal one when you set them out? No, I don't think that ever happened to me. Yeah. So I had all these stuffed monkeys... So it's weird that that's where my mind went. <laughs> I think it's because I live in the Bay Area where everything is stolen so quickly. The moment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, this was 2004, too, a while sure. ago. But um, so anyway, so the funny story happened um, when I was at the uh, uh, stop at the Harvard Primate Center, which mm-hmm. is actually was in Southboro. That's like a suburb of Boston, basically. The New England Primate Center, huge primate lab. Um, it's not there anymore, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but so this is the one that disappeared. This is the one that shut down. But when I was there, I had my long line of stuffed monkeys. And the primate center, there was like a gate at the front. You couldn't even see the building. They were like way back in the forest, basically. And I was set up at their entrance, like at the end of their driveway with all these monkeys. And their security guard came over. And he was like, what are you doing putting all your monkeys there? That's our property. And I'm like, I don't think those monkeys are on your property. I, you know, they, they're, their property line's there and like, I got a couple feet in front of your property line. He's like, yeah. no, I think they're on your, our property. I'm like, I don't think they are, and I'm going to leave my monkeys there because I think they're on public property. <laughs> and he's like, all right, fine, and grumble. So I knew right away, like yeah. from the moment I got there, that like security and cops were crazy. They were being really aggressive and weird with me or whatever. And that was like a dynamic I had on the whole tour. Like everywhere I stopped, these labs hated that I was there. Their security would give me grief about where I parked, how I set up, where my table was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it was Davis, California, maybe put these stakes in the ground with giant reflectors to like, so, so a car wouldn't run me over or something. Really? They were just crazy and all their micromanaging. But anyway, there was this crazy thing that happened to me that I haven't really shared with very many people, but it's kind of a funny story. 
while I was tabling there, this this guy came up, and I didn't know like anyone that was coming up and chatting with me in any of these cities. But he was chatting with me for a long time, you know, for an hour maybe, learning about primate testing. And I had like lawn chairs. We would sit down and chat with me for a while, just like you and I are talking. And I was telling him like, yeah, you know, all this horrible stuff is going on over there. But, you know, no one has ever even seen those labs. No one's even seen those buildings. And he was like, well, you have a video camera right there. He's like, why don't you go like just walk through the woods and go film it? And I'm like, oh, I don't want to go, you know, they already know that I'm here and they, you know, they'll, they'll be looking for me and they know I'm here. And he's like, well, they don't know who I am. <laughs> and he goes, why don't you let me use your video camera and I'll go back there and, and get some video of these labs. Wow. And I was like, okay, yeah, <laughs> go ahead and go ahead and take my camera. So he took my video camera and this is in 2004. So it was like a mini DV tape camera, sure. like a really old technology yeah, by yeah. today's standard. But he took my camera and this was the same camera that I had had the whole tour and all the previous stops where I had recorded little video diaries mm-hmm. basically on my whole tour. And that tape was still in the camera even from like the previous stops. Yeah. So he took my camera and he went walking off into the distance and he walked into the into the woods where this lab is. And I was like, wow, this guy's really going in there to like get video. No one's even seen these buildings before. Yeah, wow. So he was back there and like an hour passes and I'm like, where is this guy? What's mm. going on? Hour and a half passes by. He's still not here. And I'm getting kind of worried. Like he, he's back there on Harvard property filming sure. these labs that are like have all these gated, it's like a Fort Knox compound. Yeah. So I'm getting super worried about this. And then... All of a sudden, this cop car pulls up, mm-hmm. and it was like Harvard University police. Mm-hmm. And this one cop car pulls up and drives up the driveway to the primate lab. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's wow. weird. And then a second cop car pulls up. Oh, no. And then a third cop car pulls up. <laughs> and then like a fourth cop. And like, seriously, it's like this giant caravan. They all huh. pull up, and they're up there at the lab for a while. Huh. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. And then they slowly drive back, and they all park like right near me, huh. like six or seven cop cars. And at this point, I'm like kind of scared shitless, to be yeah. honest with you. I don't even know who this guy was. And I'm like, oh, my God, did I just get like entrapped? I don't know who this guy was. He's still back there with like my sure. camera. Yeah. All his shit and all these cops are suddenly showing up. This cop gets out of his car. He's like uh, Southboro Police Department. Mm-hmm. Walks up to me and he's like, all right, I need to see some ID. Mm. And I'm like, why do you need to see my ID? And he's like, I am detaining you. This is an investigation. I need your ID. And I'm like, holy shit. And then I'm like, I don't want to give you my ID. I'm kind of trying to argue with him a little bit. And he's like, give me your ID. And he's like freaking out. He's like, you are being detained. I need your ID. Yeah. And I'm like, holy shit. And so I like. Massachusetts is stop on ID to state. Do you know? I don't know, to be honest. Okay. I don't know. But I grab my ID. He's totally being intimidating. It's like all these cop cars. I'm serious. There were probably like seven or eight cop cars. I give him my ID. And he's like running my ID and writing down my information. He's going and talking to these guys. And this guy, I don't even know, right? He's like back there in the woods somewhere with my camera, right? And like maybe he's been arrested or something. Maybe they caught him and they're like piecing. And I'm like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I'm like, well, when the cop comes back, I'm going to be absolutely silent. I'm not going to say anything because I'm, and then I'm like, and I'm like, how can they prove that that camera's even mine? And then I'm like, oh shit, the tape, the tape has my face on it. If they play, I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do? You know, he's back there. He was filming the lab. What am I going to do? So the cop comes back and I'm like really convinced him to be arrested and like, Uh you know, everything cops here and he goes, all right, Mr. Beckham, you know why I'm out here? You know why Harvard called me out here, don't you? You know what this is about, don't you? You know what it's about, don't you? And I'm like, I'm not talking to you. And he's like, yeah, that's because you know what it's about. You won't move your monkeys. (laughs) (laughs) Swear to God, this is the truth. 
Eddie's like, you refused to move your monkeys this morning, and that's a trespass. Huh. Your stuffed monkeys are one foot on their property line, and every one of your stuffed monkeys is trespassing. Wow. And you need to move your monkeys. And then I'm like, holy shit, all these cops came here because of my stuffed <laughs> monkeys? monkeys? And I was immediately relieved. And then I, But then my relief turned to terror, because I'm like, what if this guy, while all these cops are here, emerges from the woods... With a camera in his hand, they're gonna be like, "What the fuck's this guy doing?" <laughs> and so I just immediately start Hopefully moving. Smart enough to not do that. Yeah, so I immediately start moving all my monkeys ac- across the street. I'm like, "I'm gonna uh-huh. get them the hell away from the Harvard property so that all these uh-huh. cops leave." And I'm like, "Oh, I'm so sorry, officer. I had no idea. I'll get all these. Mo- I'll move all these monkeys." You know, at that point, I'm just like so relieved. <laughs> so I'm moving all these monkeys, and, and this cop the whole time is like berating me. Actually, he's uh-huh. like, "You think that you know you have a right to step on people's property, and you know you don't have unlimited rights, and you need to respect." other people's property and he's like ranting to me the whole time and i finally move all the monkeys and one by one all the cops leave Uh and a few minutes later that guy emerges from the forest (laughs) and he's like yeah i saw all those cops and i just hung i just you know hang tight back in the forest because i saw those cops there and he's like "Were, were they there because of me did they spot me and I was like, no, dude, they were here because of my stuffed monkeys. <laughs> and he was like, are you serious? He's like, I thought for sure like some camera spotted me or something. So then he gave me the tape and um, he got some of the only footage like anyone ever got huh. of the primate lab. Wow. He actually, I don't know how this guy did this, this random guy I've never met, <laughs> positioned himself like a ninja, like in the in the woods where they couldn't see him. Yeah. And he actually filmed people coming and going from these labs with blood all over them. Wow, I couldn't crazy. believe the video he got. Um, and you could kind of see inside some windows. You could see monkeys in cages. Do you still have this video footage? I don't think so. It was on a it's DV bad. tape. I mean, it's like, I don't even know how I would Transfer. digitize it these yeah. days. But um, it was just, it was a pretty remarkable experience. Yeah. Like, I thought for sure this crazy bad thing was about to happen to me. And when the yeah. cops said they want you to move your monkeys, yeah, it was pretty surreal. That's great. Have you stayed in touch with that guy? Did you get his contact info? No. No? You have no idea who it was? I have no idea who he Do you was. you remember his name? No. Wow. If he's listening now, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for not coming out of the woods and yeah. getting us both arrested. But, you know, and I wouldn't, I, I didn't share this story for years out of yeah. paranoia or whatever, but I mean, yeah. surely the statute of limitations for trespass have got to be long sure, gone. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think we have, you know, our tax dollars pay for all these places. We should be able to for see sure. them. Yeah. No. But 15 years later, you should be good. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. That's such a yeah. crazy story. Cool. All right. All right. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I I think it was a lot of fun with some absolutely ridiculous stories. Uh, It's funny because Jeremy was, hopefully I'm not disclosing too much by saying this, but Jeremy was very, very reluctant to publish this podcast because he thought, oh, there was nothing interesting that I had to say. And if you thought it was an interesting podcast, let him know. Reach out to the Utah Animal Rights Coalition or Jeremy Beckham on Twitter and let him know you thought the podcast was an interesting one. Uh, but as usual, I want to thank everyone who, who helped out with this podcast, Shalom Lafakis for editing, Dean Wersikowski, Priya Ohani, Julie Waldrup, Catherine Bin. So many people have helped out. And, and then, of course, Ronnie Rose, the co-executive producer, um, my buddy and co-founder and, of Direct Action Everywhere, who's been the intellectual inspiration for a lot of the work we do. Uh, love you all. You're amazing. And then finally, as always, I got to thank all of you. Uh, you're the reason I do this. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, had some fun with it. And if you liked it, rate the podcast on whatever app you're using, subscribe to it and and share it with a friend because I think a lot of people can benefit from the ideas and conversations and strategies that you hear in this conversation. 
Um, as usual, I'm trying to integrate a little more into the outro feedback from, from folks out there on the interwebs who are giving me feedback about the work that we're doing. And, you know, one of the things I've heard uh, over and over again is that people want to near, hear more about this new project. And I promise you that the website is coming out very soon. So uh, it's going to be called the Sanctuary Initiative. And the idea behind this is if we are going to solve the problems of human trust, or I should say human distrust and disconnection, then maybe the way animals relate to one another in an environment like a sanctuary is a model for us all. But stay tuned for more. I think this will probably be the last podcast we publish before the Sanctuary Initiative launches. And I'm going to want all of you involved. So if you're interested in building more trust, more connection, more compassion in this world, stay tuned for the Sanctuary Initiative, which should be launching sometime in the next couple of weeks. But as always, thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.